Good morning, members. Uh, welcome to this morning's meeting. Um, and I've declared the meeting open to the public online. Can I welcome members who are participating by video conferencing uh, this morning? And that is Colin McGrath this morning is joining us and in an effort and attempt to uh, ensure the social distancing guidelines are adhered to here in the meeting. Can I also remind members about the protocols regarding the use of electronic devices? So the committee has received no apologies this morning. Um, okay, members aware of any apologies? No. Moving on then to chairperson's business, I would first of all very much like to welcome Jonathan Buckley as a new member of our committee. And this is your first meeting, Jonathan. You're very welcome. Thank you. Um, and also just to note that myself and Jerry during the week did a meeting in with, with some of the transgender sector. We will be returning to that under correspondence, so we'll maybe get a chance to, to outline the meeting in a bit more detail then. Okay, thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Moving on then, members, to draft minutes. Uh, item three there, I refer you to the draft minutes of the meeting held on the 20th of October and also the 22nd of October, which are tabs 3.1 and 3.2 of the meeting pack. Are members content with those minutes? Yep. And thank you, members. So matters arising then, members. There are no matters arising from those minutes. So we're moving on then to our first session this morning, substantive session around COVID-19 disease response. And we are receiving an update from the Minister for Health today. I refer members to papers at tab 5 of the meeting pack and tab 5 of your table papers. Can I advise members that the Minister and the Chief Medical Officer are both here today to update the committee on COVID-19 and other members. So I'd now like to welcome in person Minister Robin Swan, Minister of Health, and by video link this morning, Dr. Michael McBride, Chief Medical Officer. So I just would then like to go ahead and invite you, Minister, to go ahead and, and brief us this morning. Um, thank you, Chair. And again, thanks for facilitating the earlier meeting. Um, and again, thank you for the opportunity to update the, the committee. Um, since my last briefing, Chair, we are all aware there continues to be a high increase in the number of positive cases of COVID-19 across Northern Ireland. And I think the coming period is still highly uncertain. I am deeply concerned by the increase in COVID cases Mike. over the last month. The uh, Minister, you might need to go over a bit closer to that, Mike. We're having some trouble. Or either, whichever one suits you better. Apologies, Chair. I was trying okay. to keep as far far away from everybody as possible. Yeah, not, not, I understand. Not, yeah. Nothing personal, I understand. Um, sorry, Chair, uh, and again, thanks for facilitating the, the, the early morning meeting. Um, and since my last briefing, we are all aware there continues to be a high increase in the number of positive uh, cases across Northern Ireland. And I think the coming period is still highly uncertain. I'm deeply concerned about the increase in, in COVID cases over the last month. And I, we believe that further waves are still a continuing threat. There are, however, signs that the action that has been taken by the executive is having an impact with the number of infections actually stabilising. Um, how the virus develops in the, the coming weeks and months will depend uh, on a range of factors. And I think the future approach to social distancing, population adherence um, to these measures, continued frequent hand washing, good respiratory practice, and the appropriate use of face coverings. While the future path of, of the pandemic is unclear, a second wave coinciding with winter pressures means that we are very likely to face the most challenging winter ever experienced by our health and social care system. So 
So we all have an important role to play in terms of minimising the spread of the virus and reducing the pressures on our health and social care system. It is clear that our system has been under severe pressure um, over recent weeks, and in particular our critical care units. And that is why it's so important to have those robust plans in place to manage that situation. As you recall, Chair, I published our surge planning strategic framework on the 6th of October, along with the individual trust surge plans. This has ensured that we have a sound framework and detailed plans in place uh, to manage the pandemic. Within these plans, the Critical Care Network for Northern Ireland um, have actually updated the Critical Care Surge Plan, which provides the ability to incrementally flex capacity to a maximum of 158 ICU beds across, across the region. And as part of the Critical Care Network for Northern Ireland plan, the Nightingale facility at the Belfast City Hospital uh, will retain uh, capacity to support the entire region. The Critical Care Network for Northern Ireland will continue to oversee and monitor the Critical Care Surge Plan and reports daily to the Department uh, within our overarching plan. Trusts uh, decide on the need to transfer patients to the Belfast City Hospital Nightingale facility. So it's important to note, Chair, that the level of staffing required to deliver the 158 ICU bed capacity um, would be extremely challenging. It's impossible to sustain for long and would have an unavoidable impact on our HSC services, and that includes, unfortunately, some complex uh, elective surgeries. But in terms of rebuilding, it's important to recognise that this happens within the prevailing COVID-19 context. And I think members will be aware of the previous trust rebuild plans, which were produced by each of the trusts and which set out how services were going to be scaled back up actually as quickly as possible over the period or the intervening periods. Uh, I'm pleased to say that at the end of phase two, and that was the period up to the first of October, the volume of activity actually delivered across the region. Um, we, we exceeded all our key indicators. Uh, for instance, for, for the three months from July to the end of September, uh, the planned increased activity was for 205,176 outpatients appointment, that's across all our trusts, or what we actually delivered was 247,825 appointments were delivered. And similarly, across Northern Ireland, we had a target of 5,458 scopes, and over the three months, we delivered 7,674. So whilst hugely welcome progress was achieved over the summer and going into the autumn, the re recent upsurge in cases uh, will inev inevitably slow that momentum. The more scarce resources the system must allocate to, to manage the actual pandemic, the more difficult it is to fully maintain the delivery of our mainstream services. And that's deeply regrettable, but it's, it's, it's the reality of the situation. But nevertheless, we continue to consider how we can maximise elective care within the very diff difficult situation we find ourselves in. And that includes protecting COVID-free sites as well as quickly scaling up elective care when COVID-19 pressures abate. But given the ongoing impact of COVID-19 on our health and social care operating capacity and the resultant reduction in productivity, um, we have continued to require um, access to the independent sector capacity to deliver core services. And Chair, just for information, from the 29th of June through to the 18th of October, over 1,000 patients have had their procedure undertaken within the independent se sector. So we will continue to use the independent sector to maximise available capacity and look at wider opportunities um, within Northern Ireland to maximise those elective provisions. 
But of course, one of the key components in our fight against this pandemic is testing and track and trace. Everyone in Northern Ireland is eligible for free COVID-19 testing if they are showing symptoms of infection and there is sufficient testing capacity to test everyone that requires a test. I would reiterate that everyone who has symptoms must come forward for a test. Testing capacity continues to be kept under active review by my officials. Um, my department continues to work closely with partners both locally and nationally to enhance and maximise the testing capacity across both our Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 programmes. My department's expert advisory group on testing is also fully linked into the mass population testing programme, which is being led by the Department of Health and Social Care. Plans are progressing within the range of local partners and experts for pilot testing in different settings in Northern Ireland. This includes a pilot for repeat testing of asymptomatic healthcare staff and testing of university students. It is important to reiterate that these tests are not a substitute for the fundamental measures already in place, which are cutting down our contacts with each other, maintaining social distancing, ensuring strict hand hygiene, wearing the face covering and downloading the Stop COVID-19 app. And in way of an update, Chair, the Stop COVID-19 Proximity app has helped in our fight against the virus and has been well received by people living in Northern Ireland with just short of half a million downloads. It is planned to release version 2.3 during the week commencing the 16th of November, and that will be subject to the successful conclusion of discussions with the Information Commissioner's Office and Quality Assurance Testing. The updated version will include features developed in response to public feedback, and in particular provides a more tailored period of self-isolation connected to the date of actual close contact with someone who has tested positive for COVID-19. For example, if the app user receives a notification relating to a contact with an infected person that took place five days ago, the end date for isolation will actually be nine days from receiving the notification. And I think that's something that Colin McGrath will undoubtedly be interested because I knew that was one of the things that he had actually raised with me before. Uh, and in developing the app uh, and adding new features, we have to balance privacy uh, and precision. There are now enough app users and sufficient numbers of positive test results to add this feature without compromising anonymity. Future updates being looked at include the ability to share a validated certificate to self-isolate with an employer or in support of a claim for discretionary support with the Department of Communities. Another key element of our response to the pandemic to help minimise the risk of COVID-19 is again protecting our care homes through regular testing. Uh, the committee is aware that a rolling regular programme of testing and care homes commenced on the 3rd of August, and on Tuesday past, I announced my intention to increase the frequency of COVID testing for staff working in care homes to a weekly basis, that's every seven days, commencing as soon as possible, with care home residents will continue to be tested every 28 days. I believe this is the right thing to do, as the expansion of testing is one of the most important weapons in our continuing battle with COVID-19. The contact tracing service in Northern Ireland also continues to play an important role in our response to COVID-19, and my department and PHA have been developing proposals for a future contact tracing model for Northern Ireland to ensure that we are well positioned to respond positively to the sustained increase in case numbers. These proposals will build on the systems that are already in place, learning lessons from both here and other countries, with an increased emphasis on automated and digital solutions. In the immediate term, we are also continuing to improve the operation of the existing system 
uh, with the embedding of the new texting and digital self-trace platforms and the focusing of contact tracing to the cases most recently notified to the service. It is worth noting, Chair, that it is not possible for society to function as, or previous, as previously normal, even if test, trace and protect is functioned to a gold standard. An effective functioning TTP service could be expected to reduce R by, by upwards to 30 per cent. It therefore must be emphasised that contact tracing is not a, a panacea or the silver, silver bullet for the many challenges this pandemic poses to society, suggesting that it would, would give false hope uh, to our citizens at this time. Countries with contact tracing systems that have been compared very favourable to ours also have recently had to impose enhanced restrictions. It would appear that their advanced contact tracing infrastructure has also experienced significant challenges in the context of an exponential growth in cases. But that said, contact tracing remains a vitally important aspect of our overall response to COVID, and it is critical, therefore, that we have the best possible level of service in place. So, in conclusion, Chair, I cannot emphasise enough that we all have a role to play in terms of minimising the spread of the virus and reducing the pressures on our health and social care system. The more we can minimise COVID-19 transmission and resulting hospital admissions, the more we can protect our services. I therefore strongly encourage everyone to follow the regulations, not only for themselves, but also to help others access essential health and social care services. Um, thank you, Chair. I'm now happy to take, to take questions. Thank you, Minister. Um, so I suppose I want to start off in relation to the, um, the whole issue about find, test, trace, isolate and support. And we do know that there are limited enough options in terms of, of dealing with this pandemic and this uh, particularly difficult disease. So one of them would be a vaccine, which doesn't exist, so that, that's obviously off the table. Um, it's clear from the, the impact in terms of both deaths and long COVID that it's not sustainable to any countenancing of population immunity is also not a viable option. So you're left then with really only two options is around the issue of lockdowns, as they have become known, and also, or alternatively, find test, trace, isolate and support. A number of weeks ago at committee here, we heard from the PHA that the system of tracing had came under pressure and had, had been severely challenged as a result of a lack of planning for around the numbers that they were expecting at the end of September time. They had been planning, they told us, for approximately 300 cases per day. That had surged by that point to 900 and went above 1,000 cases. So my question would be, what have you done in the meantime to ensure that we upscale that, test, that tracing part of the operation to a point where it's flexible enough to deal with whatever the demand should be. And I also, I also note that many countries who do this, uh, and the ECDC, in fact, recommend that this is not necessarily something that has to be done by clinical staff, but can be done by, for example, civil servants who are in furlough. So you have flexibility to flex the system up and down. Um. And thanks, Chair. I, I know. I know. You, the, I, I think there's a third option. You said it was either restrictions or TTP. I think there's that middle path in between, where we actually have a, a reduced uh, level of restrictions, but supported regulations, and that supporting of good health messaging, you know, the social distance and good hand hygiene, face coverings. If we can embed that into their population, it adds to that that armoury of what we actually do as well. So rather than than just look at you know, lockdown or TTP, there is that. 
that contribution in between. Uh, in, in regards to, to where we are with TTP since, since, that, uh, since the engagement you had with PHA, where we are at the minute, we have a total staff. Um, now, this is yesterday's update of 220. Now, that's made of a balance of uh, 27, those 27 full-time staff uh, who work 37 and a half hours a week, 69 part-time staff who work between anything between seven and a half and 30 hours per week, which is you know their 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 contract choice. But we also have that bank staff of 124, uh, which gives that fully flexible operation that we need, so we can call people in and and you know, as and when needed when we see those increases. The period the PHA were talking, and I think it was in within a period of a week, we went from 300 to over a thousand cases per day. Uh, and that's where that, that, that challenge came. So in the meantime, what we actually brought forward was our text messaging <coughs> service, uh, so that positive cases could be texted, that they were a positive result, and how to contact contact tracing. We also brought forward our online digital service as well, which allowed people to, to input their own contact details and who they've been in contact with. Um, that has been established, it's been brought forward, but it's still being built upon and it's still being, I suppose, expanded and um, updated to make sure we can gather actually cluster information from it and go back from the, to the seven days. And I think it's something that, that Paula Bradshaw had raised in the committee as well, you know, the further back so we can find the point of, point of infection as well. So there has been a lot of ongoing work uh, in regards to that, that facility as well. In regards to, I, I know what the, you know, you reference what I said about not putting clinical staff in there, but putting the call centre staff and civil servants in there. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a path we didn't go down. Because what we found, um, um, and and I think rightly so, that when when we contact some people, they're looking more than just being told that they've been come in contact with somebody who's positive. They're wanting to know what they can do, where they should go for help what medical need uh, they can. And there's also um, a level of anger and frustration when people get called. Um, you know, I've, I've had feedback from some of the staff working in the, the call centre when I visited, you know, of actually uh, anger being taken out on them. Because how dare you for me to tell me I've been close? Who would have done this to me? You know, so to rather put that service into civil servants working off a script um, our direction of travel, that there should be people there to provide uh, that help and support. And I think, as you know, when you talk about our test trace, uh, isolate and support service, I think that that staff behind that uh, have to be able to give that wee bit more. And I think that's that's yeah. the direction of travel that we, we've taken, Chair. And, and I would agree, although you did say you did say, Minister, that there's a, a move towards looking at more automated and digital solutions. And I know there is this reference to digital first. And I think there is that concern there. And one, one example of a family that I dealt with at, at that particular time was an older couple whose daughter had moved in with them at the start, at the very start of COVID, to provide them the care that they needed, living in a pensioner's cottage. She, she, the, the daughter uh, received a positive test and had to self-isolate. Was trying to isolate within a house with one bathroom and one very small room. The two parents couldn't get tested couldn't get answers on, on PHA lines and were absolutely distracted and, and afraid, terrified, but they didn't have the ability to isolate within that setting. So I, I agree that we need human contact in order to provide that support and that, that, uh, that genuine support for people to isolate, because 
if this, 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 this system of fine tester is a, is a chain, and if any one element of that chain is, out, is not functioning, the entire, the entire system is weakened. So in terms of isolation then, what support are the department offering people in terms of the, the actual building that the people live in, in terms of finances, protection from work issues where people are in more precarious work? What plans are there to, to reinforce that part of the system? Uh, and, and I suppose that, that, that's the, the question, Chair, is, is what's the department doing? It's not the de what the department is doing. It's not what the Department of Health is doing on this. Uh, it's what the executive is doing now. Uh, we've had great support over the past number of weeks from First and Deputy First Minister, because this system works with a, an, a collective exec, executive uh, support. So we can't provide, you know, the the ability to give support payments. Um, so working with, uh, actually working with the Minister of Communities, in regards to the additional COVID support payments that are already there, something that's in place in Northern Ireland that are in a way of a non, I think it's a non-repayment loan. And that has been there from from the first wave. Now, what we're doing with the uh, the, the Department of Communities, we have a member of, of their department now working alongside uh, the the group that's looking how we how we expand what test trace and protect do, uh, but to make sure that information flow is there, so that if somebody does test positive, they're directed to the appropriate point in the, the Department of Communities where they can access uh, that financing as well. And I know it's, it's something that the member or the chair raised before, you know, but how we can provide um, almost accommodation. It's not something that we see within our, our, our remit in health, but it's something that we're again talking to the Department of Communities about how we can look to, to, to provide that additional support. It's not easy, chair, because you know the, the lack of available housing capacity already in Northern Ireland, or how we commandeer. Um, hotels. It's something that you know. As for a wider executive discussion, we are see, seeing that uh, wider engagement now in what we're doing in TTP because this is a holistic approach. You know, it's not simply a health approach. And I think the the work we're seeing uh, across all executive departments and how we support people once they receive that positive uh, positive result, I think is to be commended. I don't know if CMO wants to come in on any of the the further updates that have been. Well, just, just before, just before we go to that, I want to go back on the issue of tracing, and I got the, I got the impression there that has there been any additional recruitment program, or how many additional tracers are being recruited now to ensure we don't get a situation that we did back at the end of September? There, there is an ongoing uh, recruitment process, and it's, an, it's actually an open recruitment process, chair, and I think there's 40 currently in training um, at the minute because again, it's not we just don't want people coming in and working off a script. So these people go through the um, they go through classroom induction. They monitor the they shadow current contact tracers to make sure they get you know I suppose the correct repartee and how they interact uh, with with callers as well. So there's 40 in training at this moment in time, and there's an open recruitment process that is ongoing. And finally, on that element of the, of of the the system. We don't hear anything really in relation to a finding strategy, and it's obviously key that we find the cases and find them early, test them, trace them, do the isolation. Are there any plans to increase testing to key frontline staff to asymptomatic testing? In, in light of, of your, your own acknowledgement that out of at, at the mid-September point, point in time, when we had 28 care home uh, outbreaks identified, 24 of those had been found by asymptomatic testing. And I think, Chair, there is, you know, and again, CMO can come in on, on the advanced mass testing programmes and the platforms that are coming in as well. We have capacity within our, 
with our own within our own system for frontline line staff who are asymptomatic, but we are looking to expand when that lateral flow uh, testing capacity, that mass testing capacity come on as targeting it. They know our frontline health service workers will be one of the key groups to test. Uh, in regards to the care homes, and you mentioned the asymptomatic finding, uh, that that's, and that's why we've increased to, to weekly testing. We are still running uh, roughly about 50% of our care homes, which are showing an outbreak of of COVID, are actually showing asymptomatic staff rather than residents. So a lot of the, that that uh, percentage is still continuing even to this day. So it proves the worthiness of our testing program within our care homes because we're identifying those cases very early. And again, when it comes to that point, uh, again, it puts stresses on our, our care home sector as well uh, and our trusts, because when those staff, although asymptomatic, test positive, they have to self-isolate for the 14 days. And then their tr the local trusts are supporting the, the workforce there to make sure we're maintaining the high level of, of care for the residents within those homes. And, and while I think, I think it is welcome that there is additional testing, that does have the knock-on effect of putting additional pressure on the staff who are doing the testing and the nurses. And I just want to come on to that issue, because I am hearing huge concern among nurses in terms of how they are coping at this point in time in relation to the fact that they have been dealing with this pandemic for so long. Um, it has been a, a hugely stressful period. They are now into a second surge. Um, and, and clearly, in the absence of workforce planning, which, which is a longer-term longer issue, um, so we have the fundamental gaps in, in recruitment that exist, so staff are already under pressure before this even started. But I am hearing now many cases of nurses who are not getting breaks, they are not getting hot meals, they are trying to grab a sandwich in the car. By the time they come out and doff and don their PPE equipment and they find uh, the canteen closed at four o'clock or they find the machine broke, it's just not worth their while taking a break. And, and staff are saying that they're actually feeling that they're now letting their colleagues down because they're aware of how much pressure they're under. So while I recognise that we cannot quickly recruit nurses, we could probably, I, I think, do more to support the staff we have in terms of breaks, in terms of meals. What is being done to address that situation urgently? Um, and I suppose, Chair, you highlighted the concern that, that we have, and I think it's, it's one that has actually been voiced by the BMA and Royal Colleges recently, and you know, our engagement with the union and staff. You know, I echo exactly what you hear. The stress and strain they're under is unbelievable. I've been saying this, I've been saying this now for months, and unfortunately it fell on many deaf ears that the pressure that we're putting on our health service when we're trying to run a COVID service, a health service, and still trying to transform. It's, it's the nurses, it's the doctors, it's, it's the porters, it's the cleaners on the ground that are feeling the strain. So when there's many calls to you know, what we do with our health service and we have to keep this service going while we don't turn down something else, it's impossible to do. Um, so how we support our, our nursing, not just our nursing colleagues, but our colleagues across the health service. You know, trusts have been asked to make sure that all those changing facilities um, supports for canteen workers are all in place, but again, you know, we'll go back to we'll go back to the trust to make sure that they are being given the appropriate facilities um, on site because they should be, especially if they're working in COVID wards and COVID COVID positive areas. That those are accessible, those are appropriate to the staff that, that need that support as well. So I'll take that back to trust to make sure that they are doing what I expect them to do, Chair. Yeah, and, and I have to say that I, I have focused there, and just uh, uh, to declare an interest that my wife is my, my wife is a nurse, so I do know this firsthand. But also, I am 
being approached from all right across the north in relation to both uh, hospital settings and also community settings. And in the community, there are significant issues with staff trying to put on flimsy aprons standing at the side of a road or outside a person's house, trying to put on paper masks in the rain. They're falling apart. Staff are then um, seeking further PPE and being told that, that that is monitored and they already got the one mask or the two masks or whatever it is they're being allocated. So these practical arrangements for the winter could have been foreseen. We did know there was going to be a second surge. Um, there are really practical issues there around staff being overworked, but also the practical difficulties of working with PPE at a time when they're picking up much more work because the hospital capacity is not there, because the GP capacity at times is not there, and an awful lot then of additional work is being picked up in the community. Have you any? Uh, have you anything to suggest, or are you? Uh, what What can be done to ease that situation? And I suppose, chair, it is the, the physical challenge of someone who's doing those care home visits. What I, I think you're describing, you know, but how you get from the car and through the front door. I'm talking community, so so going to people's houses. In into yeah. people's houses. Yeah. At, at what point they put the PPE on? Because one of the things we did actually find in the first surge was complaints uh, coming from the general public when they saw domiciliary care workers putting their PPE on in the car and then walk, walking um, to the front door. There, you know, there was the complaints that come in that they weren't using the PPE right because they were walking outside with it on. So it's that challenge. But at what point, you know, the, the care worker puts it on? It should be when they get to the front door of the house, just inside the front door as well. You know, so there is is that practicality. I'll make sure that guidance is clear, Chair, because you know, there, there's nobody expects any care worker to be standing outside in the rain trying to put on a face mask or or an apron. Okay, and I'll just leave that. I'll go to members now. I'll just leave that. But I do want to leave it on, on some of the things I have heard in recent weeks. Is uh, one nurse saying, "I just wish this was all over." I'm frightened, exhausted, deflated, and feel I've been thrown under the bus for a second time. And another nurse has described it as uh, feeling like lambs to the slaughter. So there is a real need to protect and support the nurses we have. They're really on. Chair, I, I hear that then daily, and I, I you know we're doing as much as we can. Um, to support all, all our workforce, there's more we can do, and there's more we will do because that's that's crucial. And look, I, I think, and it's it's that point that we've tried to get across. And again, I, I say this um, from from the Royal College of, or from the BMA and the GPs, from the Royal Colleges coming out yesterday. They're echoing everything I've been hearing for the past two or three months in regards to that pressure. And I would only I would only wish that people out there would appreciate this, the the strain. Uh, that our health service is under, and how they can help chair by breaking the chains of infection. I've said it in the chamber. I've said it in here. The fewer people we have coming forward with COVID and needing COVID support, uh, the more people we can get into our normal phase of work. The less, the less, more pressure we can take off that workforce. Chair, to put things into perspective, 418 COVID inpatients yesterday. That's the equivalent of 52 eight-bedded wards. Now that is a massive footprint across our entire health service supporting COVID plus patients. Those COVID plus patients, you know, they're not there through their fault. They're there because they've contacted a highly transmissible virus. So it's up to our duty to support them and that's why the pressure's coming on our system. And I think you recognise, Chair, you know, our, our health system has been underfunded, has been understaffed for the past ten years. We can't adapt and we can't flex up no matter how much I want in the past two two months. But between what was the end of the first wave and the start of this wave, you know that staff that staff pool isn't there. There's no additional resource we can bring. So the additional the additional ask that we put on our staff is over and above uh, many of, of of what what we should be expecting to do. 
but there's, they are that professional workforce. They're a dedicated workforce, Chair. And that's why I think we, uh, not just as an executive, but also as an assembly and as a society, have to do everything we can possibly do to make sure if there is a third wave, it's as far away from this current situation as we can possibly get it. And the way to do that is to have a properly functioning, fine test, race, isolate, support, and communicate. And uh, people following the regulations, Chair. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yes, that, that's what people can do. What the department can do is ensure that, that part of it. I won't end to a Deputy Chair, forced to Pam Cameron. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Minister, for your um, attendance this morning. And I'm sure you're as excited as I am to be out of the House, so this, uh, as is Alan today, even if it is just to come to the um, Health Committee. Um, uh, the Chair has covered quite a lot of what I wanted to ask you around um, testing as well, but in terms of um, the care setting, testing, and I welcome the news that the staff are to be tested every week, but we've already heard from the care sector about the challenges that that places, the administrative burden, and um, certainly from the committee side of things, they did actually say that they could not, um, they didn't basically have the resource um, to carry out any more testing than what they were already doing. So my first question to you would be, um, what are what plans do you have to support them, especially in that administrative, with the administrative burden that the additional testing, effectively doubling the testing, um, which I completely see the need for and agree with. Um, but I would like to ask you specifically if you've if you've requested um, military assistance, um, even to deal with. Uh, the logistical issues that, that it can be helped with. You know, I think we should be taking assistance from wherever we can get it in order to, to help these um, settings cope with the burden that's being put um, upon them. And it's also um, interesting that uh, the amount of asymptomatic cases that are being picked up through that routine testing is proof that ideally if we could have testing en masse that would be a good thing. And so I'd like to know what how, where you're going with that, how you're working towards increasing that, and not just asymptomatic, but obviously even your own colleague admitted that um, who pe tested positive and probably pinged us. Um, we'll not hold him guilty for that, but um, he certainly he has uh, publicly said that he didn't have any of those four main symptoms. So it also th throws up um, very much the issues around um, additional symptoms that. You know, maybe should be a, a case of allowing you to actually seek that test. Um, so that's uh, my my main my main question. And um, on still with the, in the theme of the testing and, and tracing would also be my concern uh, about how the PHS is handling the test trace protect program. And you know, we did get that clarification in our correspondence today around. The many full-time equivalents um, are actually um, em employed in that programme at the moment. That that was just 88, um, which seems a very low number given the um, the pressures that they are under. Um, so, I suppose to my suggestion would be that you, that you should be seeking for additional help wherever that would come from. And if, that, if that's um, uh, military assistance, in that I think we should be seeking out ev every possible avenue in order to assist that programme given its importance and I do I understand where you're coming from uh, where you don't want to be going down the call centre route as such but as the chair has referred to you admitted yourself that we have gone more to you know uh, texting first 
um, uh, online um, information has been requested from you. We're very much relying on the public to do the right thing, you know, to take the call, to actually respond to the text, to go online and upload that information. I would have, you know, a lot of concern around. Uh, where, the, where any type of enforcement is coming from, making sure that we're getting accurate information. Because I know many um, families, and this is over the last week or so, who uh, have come into close contact with somebody who has tested positive. They haven't received a text, a phone call, a ping, nothing. And I, I know people who are very concerned about it. They've done the right thing. They've gone and looked for the advice themselves and, and self-isolated, but they weren't contacted. So I would have you know, a lot of concern around um, the, the service becoming less effective as time goes on, given the pressures and the sheer quantity of people that need to be contacted. Okay, um, maybe just to pick up on that, that last point, and again, it's, you know, the conversation I, I, you know, I've heard repeated as well, you know, I know somebody who has tested positive, but I never got contacted. The only way that person would get contacted is if the person who tested positive actually gave their details as a close contact. You know, so there, there's no way, you know, unless, you know, and again, it's, I, know, I know who you, who you think ended up getting your ping as well, but I, I, I may agree with you. Uh, unless, unless I say, unless I tell test. Test trace and protect systems that I was close to you. You're never going to be informed if I test positive. So there's a reliance there on the people who test positive giving forward that information uh, as well. And I think that was one of the challenges we see, we saw uh, with test trace and protect. So uh, in regards to that automated online system, we've already seen an upwards of 20% of people who are testing positive actually going down that route because they're more comfortable putting information into that. So it's about trying to get a service that that people are comfortable interacting with. Some people want to talk to somebody, some people are happy sitting doing it on their phone or on the computer as well. So it's making sure that we can get as much much accessibility as as is possible within that regard. But for somebody to get told or called or pinged, the person who tests positive has to take that responsible step and letting other people know as well. Uh, in regards to you know the the changes in, in uh, test taste and protect, as I said, you know, we're up to two hundred and twenty two hundred and twenty employees across those three different employment uh, models. Um, Liz Mitchell, who's a former acting chief medical officer, has now come in to head up uh, the test trace and protect system, uh, our directorate within PHA, so that we can bring in some, some additional expertise and management, management skill there just to, to re-ensure that what we're going in the direction we're travelling is going in the right direction. In regards to, to care home testing and the, the additional, I suppose, the additional pressures and responsibilities that come on with, with going to to weekly testing. Um, I, I suppose we try to step this out in a, in a specific way, and that's why back on the 21st of, of October, I announced that additional 27 million pound uh, funding support for care homes. Uh, part of that was to allow them to put in systems uh, when we did move in this direction that there would be additional financial supports there as well. Now there is still money from the. The, uh, the initial care home support package that we're reprofiling as well, so they can get as much uh, financial support for what they need need to do um, in, the, in, the, in the care homes as well, because uh, as you, you identify, the asymptomatic testing is important to us. In regards to, to the mass testing programme, you know that is work that is ongoing. Uh, we're, high, we're tied into what's happening across 
across the, the water in regards to that and have some you know some pilots already in training you know and, and chair I, I will bring the CMO in to talk about the the symptomatic testing in regards to you know the military support that the the member ha, has raised we have used um, we've used we've used the army in the past we've used the RAF to to transfer ECMO patients um, across to hospitals in England when we need to to use that facility as well we've used them for the logistic logistical planning around uh, what our PPE distribution could look like um, and where our first nightingale could have been when we look to either econ or, or upscale and the, the tar as well. So look, we're, we're in continual conversations with anyone who can supply additional support to us when it's appropriate and where it's, where it's actually available. And I want maybe just to dispel some of, some of the myths that out there. You know, there's almost, you know, uh, and I heard it you know, a number of weeks ago, you know, calling the army to help out our nurses. One of the things that is, I, I suppose, should be put put out there when it comes to our our reserve forces, our territorial um, army, medical corps here in Northern Ireland. I think, in regards to seventy-five uh, percent of those yeah. are actually NHS workers. So it's not as if they're an additional workforce that can be called on. They're already part of our workforce. Uh, the other part of that workforce is already deployed or already involved in either administrative or medical situations within the MOD as well. So it's not as if there's a pull of ICU nurses or, or cancer surgeons sitting ready to use, but when it comes to, to logistical support, we've used them in the past, we'll use them, we'll use them in the future as and when necessary, and I've, I've said that, you know, so that's, that, that's some of the points as well. So in the mass testing, Michael, do you want to maybe just update as to where we are? Yes, Mr. Um, we are, as the Minister said, fully uh, aligned with colleagues in the rest of the UK in terms of the introduction of the uh, new mass testing uh, project and programme of work. Uh, that includes new rapid uh, technologies, which uh, have the benefit also of being less invasive in terms of sampling, um, that uh, some of the tests are actually based on a saliva sample as opposed to the uh, approach in terms of actually swabbing the nasopharynx, which unfortunately uh, many are, are, are familiar with. Uh, therefore, it's less intrusive. Um, and for some of these tests, um, you know, the lateral flow uh, it's referred to, or the new lamp technology, uh, those results can be available in um, minutes uh, up to an hour, and they can be done at scale. Uh, they're less labor intensive, they're less dependent on uh, reagents. Um, which has been some of the rate limiting steps, as members will know, from uh, the challenges around the PCR testing, certainly in the early phase. Uh, Northern Ireland is well placed. Uh, we are building on pilots that have been uh, undertaken in England in terms of a number of, of cities there. Um, we have begun uh, the piloting and validation of those new tests here in Northern Ireland. Uh, and increasingly, we will begin to look at their use uh, in uh, individuals who may be repeatedly exposed to the virus across a range of settings. So that will, will include obviously healthcare workers. Uh, it will include other uh, frontline uh, services. Uh, it uh, again, we will be looking to our universities in terms of where students may be frequently exposed to the virus, and indeed it may provide a gateway uh, for students to return right across the United Kingdom and elsewhere home uh, for uh, for Christmas. Uh, so I think that there is no doubt. Um, as they scale up very rapidly into the new year, and probably I anticipate uh, by February we will have these at scale. I think it also offers uh, a very fundamental 
uh, change in terms of our approach to uh, how we uh, coexist with this uh, new virus. Uh, one can see the situation uh, where uh, at a population level uh, there could be availability to daily testing uh, for much of us um, and that is something which is a realistic uh, possibility. Uh, it will not replace in terms of the diagnostic um, ability to confirm um, the presence of uh, COVID-19, but what it will do is provide an opportunity for us at scale to reduce the risk of us uh, interacting uh, within society. Um, and I think it really will be a game changer, and I think as the Chair has said, uh, the other game changer, uh, which I again am, I am uh, confident uh, will increasingly uh, we'll be hearing more about is the uh, introduction of vaccines, and I think that uh, it is uh, highly likely that we will see vaccines become becoming available uh, early in the new year. Okay, thank you. Uh, so, Chair, sorry, just uh, I was remiss of me. I should have declared an interest of having a family member um, working in ICU and also another one uh, recently recruited into the test and tracing system. Okay. I just wanted to make that Thank point. Thank you. And members need to ask you to keep it really tight now because the minister is on is, is on a tight time with us this morning. I'm going to Jonathan, then we're going to go to Paula on the phone and back to Pat in the room. Thank you, Chair, and thanks uh, to the committee for the warm welcome. Uh, I look forward to playing a full role at the committee, and indeed I don't underestimate the, the grave responsibility that this committee has on its shoulders. Uh, firstly, I would do a question to the Chief Medical Officer and then to the, to the uh, Health Minister himself. You know, Chief Medical Officer, uh, welcome this morning. Um, I know that you sense the grave deal of responsibility involved when making public commentary in relation to COVID-19. People's lives and indeed their livelihoods quite literally hang on every word that is said, uh, both here in this committee and indeed on the airwaves. So I want to refer specifically to your comments concerning the reopening of education and, and hospitality, uh, and rightly or wrongly how they have been interpreted as a slight on school staff, patients and workers acting in good faith. Um, I would like to caution you, uh, Chief Medical Officer, in that approach, because the last thing that we want is to pit communities and different sectors against each other when we face uh, a dangerous time in our health service. So can the Chief Medical Officer uh, elaborate on his claim that hospitality opening, opening up again will push the R number into dangerous territory? How does that stack up with evidence published that closure would only reduce R by 0.05? Thank well, you, Jonathan. And Chief, Chief Medical Officer and Minister, if I could also equally ask you to both be as brief as you can with your answers. Thank you. Uh, well, well thank you. Uh, just to uh, correct the member, I basically, when I am asked a question, I answer factually based on the scientific evidence. Uh, how, unfortunately, those comments are then interpreted and uh, used or misused uh, in terms of uh, in other discussions is not a, not a matter for me. Certainly, the last thing uh, that I would wish uh, to see happening is uh, this being pitched uh, as an either-or. We're all aware of the importance of education of our, of our children. I've said that repeatedly. We've paid a very high price. We're all aware of the importance of a strong economy uh, in terms of uh, reducing health inequalities and ensuring people have good life opportunities, live longer, and, and actually uh, reduce the burden of disease. So I, I'm acutely aware and very measured in all the comments uh, that I make. And indeed, all of those comments are informed uh, by the scientific evidence. And indeed, uh, all of that information is in the public domain uh, and uh, is published and available on the department website. 
Okay. Thank Th you. Thank the Chief Medical Officer, and I know he will agree with me that interpretation uh, is key in all of this in terms of uh, how it involves and, and uh, takes into account the public narrative. Uh, to, to the Health Minister, just I know time is, is brief. Uh, the Health Minister will know from my time in questioning in the Chamber that I, I have grave concerns regarding non-COVID patients, as I know he does also. In, in, these, in these days. So can I ask him, by Tuesday the 3rd of November, the dashboard confirmed that the total beds occupied by non-COVID patients has dropped by over 300 in the past two weeks, roughly 900 overall since the 11th of October. What is the Minister's assessment of the, where those patients are right now? I mean, surely their needs haven't gone away. I have a real concern that we run the risk of failing those patients, and is it likely that some have already sadly passed away because the inpatient care wasn't available to them when they needed it? And, you know, and, and I think I've, I've answered the, the member in the chamber when he's raised this point before, and I've, I've raised it in my opening comments, Chair, as well. The more patients that we have to support by COVID, with COVID, uh, the fewer patients we can support by other needs because we do not have um, the footprint, we don't have the staff to be able to do both. We don't have the staff or the ability to run the three health services that I talked about at the beginning when Bungoa brought about or recommended his changes. What he actually said, we in Northern Ireland would need to run two health services, a transformation health service and our normal health service to keep on the top of things. What we're currently trying to do now is run three, a COVID health service, an elective and uh, registered um, operational health service and part of that transformational health service which comes about by the changes um, that we have to make. And as a chair, as I said in my, my opening comments, 418 COVID uh, patients is the equivalent of 52 eight-bedded wards that we have to support. If the member seriously thinks that we can turn away COVID patients um, to support everybody else, it's not a health service that we can possibly maintain. We have to support the people who present who need medical treatment and support here and now. We do that by having, unfortunately, to turn down many of our services that we want to keep going that our health service want to keep going, that our surgeons want to keep going, that our doctors and our nurses want to keep going. So we're not doing this out of, out of some whim uh, that we're turning people away or turning beds down. We're doing it out of necessity because we have to supply the medical support that is in place. We've laid that out clearly. We laid it out clearly from, from the early steps uh, on the 19th of March of this year when we published our very detailed surge plans as to how we thought the system, our healthcare system, would have to have to react uh, to the number of patients presenting with needed support of COVID as well. That was followed up by the 9th of June when we started to publish our rebuilding plans. Those were, were published across not just the, the department but across all trust as well as to how quickly we could re-engage our service uh, to get as many as those patients who had to be stood down, their treatments had to be stood down. Uh, during the first wave could get back up and running again. We've done that, and we've done it successfully over that period of time, as I said in my opening comments. Uh, on the 10th of July, the Trusts then published their three monthly building plans, which step, took another step forward. And it's one of the things that we did deliberately, was move that on three monthly blocks uh, so that we could utilise uh, our capacity of the staff available to bring as many people who had missed treatments, missed support, missed scopes, missed diagnosis back into the system as quickly and effectively and as safely as possible, because COVID hasn't went away. If it hadn't went away then, and we, and we know it well. On the 5th of October, the 6th of October, I think it was, uh, I then had to come to the Chamber. And I came to the Chamber and I announced 
that we had paused that rebuilding framework. We had we were still trying to do what our current targets were, but unfortunately we had to relaunch our second surge plan. That's where we're at. So we can cope and support uh, those patients who, and those people who are coming forward with positive COVID diagnosis that need hospital support. And unfortunately, um, we're seeing more of them than we would like. And the only reason, the only way we can support them within our health and social care service is by turning down, as I say, those elective services that we want to deliver. So it's not, uh, I don't think that the member is trying to betray that for some reason, you know, people are being turned, turned away at the door just because it's something that we see easy to do. It's not. And I think that is actually undermining some of the healthcare professionals who the chair referred to earlier on who are under immense, immense pressure and immense strain because they actually want to support everyone who presents to them and they don't want to be, have to be in the position where they have to choose. Thank you, Minister. Um, so, Paula, please, are you there for a question, Paula? Paula Bradshaw. On mute. Oh, th thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you, Health Minister and CMO, for coming this morning. Um, the CH report of the 21st of September said that if you were going to reintroduce these type of restrictions, you should also at the same time introduce support packages for those people who are most acutely going to be affected by it. And I'm talking about carers and people who will not be shielding, but will certainly self-isolate themselves to, to um, reduce their um, um, ability or potential to be infected. Could you give us an outline of what exactly you have done in terms of putting in place additional support programmes? In regards to carers specifically, Paula? Yeah, well, well, everybody who would be vulnerable, and, and I'm talking about mental health services, support services, anything like that. Well, I, I suppose one, one of the things that did come forward, and I suppose specifically in regards to mental health um, services, in regards to our mental health strategy, we were able to put in place a specific part of that um, because we were in the first surge we put, uh, for COVID-19 mental health uh, support packages. In recent funding applications, we have put in bids as well, and there's a lot of work has been done online, uh, and online counselling, online support packages uh, for people with, with, with COVID or those who are feeling the stresses. We put in uh, a psychological and psychological support uh, for healthcare workers across the entire system as well. So it's about how you really we digitalise a lot of that, but also make it available for anybody who still needs it, that there are the face-to-face -face consultations that we need. Um, again, supported by the piece of work that's ongoing by the appointment of the mental health champion, Professor Siobhan O'Neill, who is feeding in not just to our department, but across all departments, as to how we actually put in place those support mechanisms um, for people who are, who are seeking help and who are, who are I suppose, looking for where the right place is to go. There's quite an online uh, directory now of online facilities that can provide that mental health support uh, and, and provision as well. Okay. Well, just just um, to follow up on that quite quickly, can you, um, in quick time, actually allow the cancer charities who you met with recently there around that fund? Can you give them some information quickly about when that's going to open? Sort of the parameters of, of the funding, whether it's be ten thousand, fifty thousand, hundred thousand, because some of them will have to bring staff back from furlough. So that's just a, just a, a brief question. My my main second question relates to student nurses and midwives. You'll know, Minister, that they only receive £430 a month as a bursary. Um, many of them are not able now to 
available. Their work that they would usually um, get involved in to um, submit, um, supplement their income. They're not eligible for student loans or grants. Um, they've been told by the Balhouse Health and Social Care Trust that they're not eligible for the free parking. I'm just wondering, are you going to reintroduce paid placements for student nurses or are you going to increase the student nursing bursary? Thank you. Um, uh, thanks, Paul. And again, this is, this is a, actually a piece of work our, our Chief Nursing Officer ha, has been leading on. Uh, part, of, part of the restriction actually comes about by the regulations within the Nursing and Midwifery uh, Council and, and their requirement. Part of a, a, a nursing student's uh, training placement must actually says within their three years uh, they have to undertake 2,300 uh, superannuated super, super uh, or unpaid actually placement work. Uh, so it's important that they actually do that uh, to receive their, their registration. There is a cohort of nurses coming forward now for graduation in, in February, uh, who the chief nursing officer is working. Uh, with with us and putting forward a submission so that we can get them online quicker. But there is there is a requirement that they have to undertake um, so many hours actually to get the registration up. Uh, it's something that the the NMC had looked at in the first wave, uh, and we're engaging with them now. All four, four chief nursing officers are actually engaging with them at the minute to see what can be done to allow them still to to register. But they also have to complete their their coursework as well. And I think you rightly identify where the additional strain um, is coming from, the additional financial strain. It's not in regards to their work or their placement, but the fact that many of the mass students were having other part-time, part-time jobs. So, like many students across the piece now are finding that additional avenue for, I suppose, for financial support uh, isn't there anymore. So there is. Um, I, I suppose it's without, uh, it's without the responsibility of, of my department to, to supplement that finance, but in regards to bursaries and the car parking, it's something we're looking at to how we can support them, because they are a valuable part of our workforce. They're a part of our workforce that we are putting a lot of investment into, um, because we real, realise the value that they do bring. So it's a, it's a piece of work that has been led on by, by the Chief Nursing Officer. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Paula. You. I, just, I just want to sort of stress the urgency of that on the cancer charity funding. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. Oh, Pat. Thanks, Chair. And I agree with the Chair what he said earlier about the fine test trees isolating support being a chain. And if there's one weak link there, it undermines the whole system. And I think there's a fundamental flaw in the maths here. Uh, we're talking about uh, gearing up uh, the contact tracing to deal with X number of cases. Well, in actual fact, if you think about it, uh, if there's a thousand positive cases, according to the, the ECDC, in a lockdown situation, there's two to three close contacts. But outside of a lockdown, it's between seven and 20. So you could be talking about 20,000 cases a day that needs dealt with. Now, uh, Professor Sam McConkey, uh, in an article in the Irish Times recently, said the, the system in the south was under pressure. Some were saying it was overrun. Others were saying it was understaffed. And the benchmark with the, the international best practice and those who are doing best to suppress this, this virus, there was a need for around 2,500 contact tracers in the south. If you extrapolate from that, we need around 1,000. And we've nowhere, we've nowhere near that. And there don't seem to be any plans to put that in place. So that's just a comment. I want to ask you about Justice O'Hara's report into hyponatremia. And uh, it's disappointing that recommendations haven't been implemented to date. 
But what's of equal importance is O'Hara's findings uh, in that report, and people won't know what is meant by the findings. So just let me uh, quote you from from O'Hara's report. He said that in 1996, doctors breached both statutory obligation and professional duty and attempted a cover-up. O'Hara's finding is that clinicians did not admit to error for the obvious reasons of self-protection and that this defensiveness amounted to concealment and deceit. He also found in 2004 and 2006 inaccurate, evasive, unreliable and misleading information that was not only given to Claire Roberts' parents but also to the coroner. And in 2006, an inquest, there was an attempt to protect the reputation of the hospital uh, and its doctors. And the coroner, uh, in 2006, the coroner reached an incorrect finding and wrongly certified the cause of Claire's death. And I'm wondering, what are you doing to address those findings, Minister? And can you tell us uh, how many doctors involved in Claire Roberts' case are being investigated by the GMC? Pat, I, I, I don't have that, that, that detail with me, um, but I will get it for, for the member. That's something, you know, I, in, in a brief that I had for today, it wasn't something I was expecting to be raised as specific as that, um, but I'll get it for you. Uh, in regards to, to the recommendations of hibernation, you know, they have been taken through by my, top, my department under a number of different work streams. Uh, they are being brought forward. Some of them have been paused due to COVID, but there is, I suppose, the main onus. Uh, and one of the pieces of work that has been looked at is that duty of candour, um, because some of the, what came out of, of a Harris report was the importance of that ability um, for a doctor, and no matter at what level, to come forward and raise concerns uh, about another professional within the system somewhere that they had, which wasn't there there in the past, uh, and that protection not not only a protection that comes with that duty of candour. But also that responsibility. That is something that, that we're working through as a department because we realise the value of it. But it has to be done right so it actually doesn't put people off uh, getting involved in the profession, or also they see it as a restriction as coming forward, or when they can't speak out, or when they should speak out. So that duty of candour, that is one of the major precepts of the finding of that uh, report, is that it has to be done right so that we get the information we need, but also that the right steps and protections are there. Uh, to be, allow it to be done in a meaningful way that actually protects patients, but also allows those within the profession um, that uh, assurance that if they do step forward, uh, they'll also be supported and listened to. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'll go then to Jerry. Uh, and thanks, then thanks oh. Chair. Um, two questions, Minister. Thanks. Um, the first is around. You'll be aware that Royal Colleges have called for breathing space, and sort of CMO made sort of maybe alluded to similar comments uh, as been referred to already. Uh, there seems to be different quarters clamouring for a return to normal in eight days. Uh, I want to ask how dangerous that would be if we did return to normal then, uh, and what is uh, the minister and the CMO advising happens after uh, the 14th? Second question is around um, the isolation grant, uh, which is available in England, Wales, and Scotland for people who have to isolate. Um, but it's not available here, and it seems to be people here are being treated worse than Tory Britain, which is definitely not a pretty picture. Um, I don't think it's good enough for ministers, yourself, or others to kind of you know toss into the executive. I think it needs to be we're here a collaborative approach being thrown out all the time. This needs to be an, an issue where ministers need to come together and ensure that people um, 
aren't being forced to choose between uh, paying bills, paying rent, and making the incorrect and wrong public health measures. So I think this is a matter of urgency. Uh, I think the Minister has a role in certainly advocating for it, and other Ministers uh, stepping up uh, with him as well. So I'd like to see your, or hear your views on that as well. Thanks. And um, the second point, first, Jerry, um, my, my understanding is that it's already there. Um, actually, our support finance package goes further. Um, than the £500 grant that was across the water. And again, I think uh, the point I was making earlier on is we need the easier way to signpost. It's there under under Department for the Communities. It's a non-repayable loan. Um, but I think, Chair, maybe if, if you got more details of that from the Department of, of from, from Communities, I think one of the problems that we've had is it's not easily, um, it's not easily linked in. You know, when you get your positive case, there's not a straight flow pointing people to you can now avail of this grant if you're if you're applicable to it or if it's, it's your your means so rather than just a simple five hundred pound payment that was across the water. So there is a financial package there, and I think it was. Um, I, I don't want to misquote her, but uh, Minister Nicole and I actually said that ours was there before the five hundred pound was there, and it was more generous as well. So I think chair, it'll be worth getting the details just so that. Your members had a, had availability of that because I think it's actually something. When I talk about the collaborative approach, I think we need to make it easier found for those people who need it, and also I suppose more publicly um, acknowledged and, and presented that it is there. Um, in regards to to the breathing space, um, when I hear comments from from colleagues across the health service saying we need it, uh, you know I, I support them in that. Um, if we don't want to back to to further lockdown and further restrictions uh, this side of Christmas, I think we do need that bit of of additional time. In regards to the recommendations that we're making to the executive, um, the executive meets um, later this morning. We'll make those recommendations to the executive. Uh, that's where we have that conversation. That's always been the way I've worked uh, since I've come in as minister. Any recommendations we make will be to the executive first. So that they have the discussions. I note that one of our, our media outlets is already trailing that. That's unfortunate. Uh, it's uh, you know when a paper that we put into to the executive last night uh, is already in the media this morning. I don't think it's a good way to work. I don't think it's fair uh, to those who now are unaware, or, or sorry, are uncertain of what the executive will decide or what it may decide because of the partial leaking um, of a document that was presented to executive colleagues last night. Okay, going to um, Orlea. Yes, thank you, Chair. Um, my first question is to the CMO, um, if that's okay, just around the, the issue you touched on around the, um, the pilots and the mass testing. So, um, if I'm correct, I think you have mentioned that February, um, you are working towards the month of February to have a sort of um, an expansion on the mass testing programme with asymptomatic. Um, individuals that will include um, students and health and social care staff. Uh, but I would just like to ask: Can you explain why have we wait, why have we to wait until February for that expansion of testing? Is that down to the length of time it takes for the pilot? Um, is it down to you know um, trying to obtain the sufficient resources or the staffing? Because I'm just conscious when we come to February, you have mentioned yourself. Hopefully, fingers crossed. We might have a vaccine in the new year. I know that won't all happen right away and be rolled out right away, but February is bringing us through basically the whole of the winter, which is going to be the most difficult month. So, is there any way that that process, um, you know, could could be brought forward 
um, any quicker or sooner, and if not, why not? Thanks. Okay, um, well, thank you for, for the question, uh, and it's a very good question because I think you know everyone wants to see a way through this and, and a return to more uh, normal life. Um, the, um, the issue in terms of the uh, availability of these tests is largely based on our ability to determine their effectiveness and to validate those tests. These are new tech tests, new technology, and it's absolutely essential that we have confidence in their ability to differentiate those people who have infection from those that haven't infection. Uh, and uh, you know, as you as you will recall, it was only in February of last year that we actually developed the first uh, diagnostic PCR test. These are brand new tests, um, and it's really the process of validation um, that will allow those to become available as quickly as possible. If we can introduce them uh, earlier uh, than uh, early next year and before February, we will do so. Uh, however, there's a, a as you say, unfortunately, there's a period of time uh, between now and then. Um, I think it's, uh, it would also be important to, to point out that um, we have opportunities now um, to test these at scale. You will have heard the recent announcement um, around the mass testing programme uh, within Liverpool, mm -hmm. uh, and that does provide a further test uh, opportunity to validate these tests. So it may well be that information uh, coming out of, out of that particular uh, pilot uh, informs the work and may allow us to move forward more quickly uh, with the rollout of, of these new te technologies. It isn't a resourcing issue, just to assure you on that. It's actually about us having confidence that the evidence base is there to support the use of these tests and in what settings. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry, but just apologies, but I need to go with two other members. I just want to get to very quickly, but and the minister does need a way. So I'm going quickly to Colin. A very quick question, Colin, please. Yeah, are you there, Colin? Colin, yes, you're... can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, we're hearing you now. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, so I've had some technology problems and haven't been able to hear all of the debate this morning, but um, I just, first of all, want to say that I totally distanced myself from the remarks of Sammy Wilson, which I think completely undermined the, the, the public health message that we're all trying to put out in a unified approach to try and reduce the spread of the virus and, and to reduce the numbers of people that go into hospital. Uh, and I fully commend the Minister and Chief Medical Officer on the work that they're doing on that front. Um, I think some of those remarks are born out of frustration within the community by some sectors, such as the likes of um, hairdressing and tattoos and other uh, uh, such sectors, who don't understand why they have been asked to close down. Now, I, I think that we do need to reduce the number of places that are open, but I was wondering maybe if Dr McBride could take this opportunity to give us a short explanation to the benefit of having those uh, types of places closed down so that they can understand and then hopefully will feel better about playing their part in staying closed and stopping the spread of the virus. Yeah, well, well firstly, uh, thank you for the, for the question, Colin. And uh, firstly, uh, for those working in the sector, I realise how difficult a time this has been. And, you know, we are trying to uh, balance both lives and, and livelihoods. And I know how distressing and anxious a time it ha has been for, for those working in, in many sectors and hospitality, uh, in retail uh, and in close personal services. The, the difficulty with this virus, as the minister said, it's highly transmissible um, and it spreads best when people come close together. And the more people that are close together, particularly indoors, the easier it is for the virus to spread. It's also particularly problematic, as we know, with all of these coronaviruses at this time of the year, uh, with uh, the cooler climate, 
less sunlight, the virus survives for longer. Um, and what we have had to do uh, prior to uh, the availability of, of more effective treatments and vaccines is actually reduce the contacts between people to reduce the transmission of the virus. And each uh, intervention, each restriction uh, that the executive considers and puts in place adds a little bit uh, to that downward pressure in reducing that all important number that we're all uh, familiar with now, that R number. Uh, so whilst close personal services may only uh, contribute 0 0.05, uh, that actually is a very significant percentage contribution to the reduction in the in the R number, because what we're trying to do is to get R below one and to keep it as far below one for as long as we possibly can, because as long as we keep it below one, that means that fewer people are being infected and we'll see the rates of infections fall, we'll see the rates and numbers of people being admitted to our hospitals and to our ICUs fall. We'll see the outbreaks in our care homes fall. We'll see less staff uh, uh, being off isolating because they themselves have acquired COVID-19. Uh, uh, and again, as we saw uh, during um, the summer months, uh, unfortunately, it is a fact that when we relax measures, um, we have a situation where our, uh, in, the, in June, was somewhere in the region of 0.5 to 0.7. And then over the course as we uh, time when we relaxed measures and allowed some sectors to open up, we had the situation where by October, R had got to between 1.4 and 1.6. Uh, the interventions we have now put in place have been effective. We've saw the highly effective interventions in Derry City and Strabane Council. And well done to everyone in the community for coming together and achieving that because it was a real effort between uh, community leaders, political leaders, uh, the business sector, uh, working with community networks. And we are making very significant progress in pressing down in our with the latest restrictions uh, that the executive has put in place. Uh, I think you, I think the chair said, I, just finally, I think the chair said uh, in his comments that people are fed up with this. And I think we are. And I can only apologize to everyone uh, for the pain and the distress and the anxiety that I know everyone is experiencing at, at this time. And hopefully into the new year um, and into the spring, things will look different than they are at not, uh, present. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Chairman, I just want to put on, uh, on record uh, that there have been concerns recently about the availability of testing. Uh, my experience was I went on to the app site at 3.30 on a Thursday afternoon uh, requesting a test. I was offered one at 4 p.m. half an hour later and one at 4.30 uh, at the Titanic Centre, which is 20 minutes up the road. So I took the 4.30 option, a uh, very efficient uh, system, uh, out of it by 5 o'clock. At 4.30 uh, the following morning, 12 hours later, uh, I got the, the negative uh, results. So w well done uh, on that. That certainly improved. Uh, the ministers referred her to um, uh, a change coming maybe in, in the app that will be 14 days uh, isolation from the, the actual point of contact uh, as opposed to when you receive the opt alert. Uh, could the Minister confirm is that a change in, in guidance that is pending or is that currently uh, uh, the advice? And also, in terms of frontline staff getting tested uh, more often with or without symptoms, and our care home staff getting tested on a weekly basis. Uh, if, if somebody in a care home setting is continuing to get negative results, 
but suddenly receives a, a close contact alert, uh, does the close contact alert take precedence over the fact that they have had a series of, of negative results? Uh, and I suppose in the last point, it all comes down to timing of the alert and the result and when the test was actually taken, because you know, it's unknown as to when that that ping or that alert actually happened, so it wouldn't. So when you receive the ping, it still is from that point of point of guidance is when you receive that notification. Uh, what I was actually referring to, Alan, was rather than um, when you receive that notification on the app, um, the understanding is now from you receive that notification, it's 14 days isolation. So what we're now looking within the app will count back to when the positive case uh, that initiated your alert actually got their positive result. So rather than having to do the 14 days from you receive the notification in the app, you do 14 days from when you were in contact with the individual who was positive. So the 14-day period is still there, only the, the period of isolation that you may have to do is actually less. So it's not a change in the direction of the 14 days. But currently, it's still 14 days from the alert. It's still 14 days. And just quickly, the other comment is, can the minister confirm that uh, other countries are experiencing uh, difficulties with their track and trace systems, and indeed, just recently, Germany had indicated that they were they were they were really struggling to uh, to cope. Yeah, no, and and I think that that's you know in my opening comments are referred to you know in regards to elsewhere and and their test trace and protect systems as well. That once you see that escalation in cases, it's hard for anybody uh, to keep up. And I think one of the things that actually come out of the German. Uh, the Germany model was they have said anything more than 50 cases per 100,000 is impossible to trace and track effectively. So it's really in, in our interest to get the, the rate of infection down as low as possible because that's when test, trace and protect actually works to its most efficient. When you have the smaller numbers that you can trace back further, you can go more in-depth as to, to when and where they've contracted the virus. So it is more effective as to advising those people when they should be isolating and how they isolate as well. So I don't think any test, trace and protect system could cope with the increase or the dramatic increase um, that we saw a few weeks ago, but we're now putting in those steps and those measures to make sure there are those safety fallbacks uh, that we can pick up as many cases as possible. Thank you, Minister. Thank you. And it is indeed good to hear that. That is the sort of the, the, the way the system should be operating, and I think we'd all like to and would need to be operating with that type of that type of rigour and quick turnaround, because I think time is of the essence, clearly. Uh, thank you, Minister, mentioning time. I know we've run slightly over time. I appreciate that, um, uh, and I appreciate both of you being here this morning and uh, addressing the members' questions. Good luck in the in the days and weeks ahead. And we do we do understand that this is an entire an entire system approach, and that that there are lots of areas uh, that need to contribute, and that that potentially it's your principal role, Minister, to ensure that they are aware of the need and and the type of support that are needed to ensure that chain of defence is in place. So thank you for that, Minister, and thank you, CMO. No problem, sir. I think we're back December, early December again. Highlight for your diary. I'm sure you're looking forward to it. It's already in. <laughs> Thank okay. you. All the best. Good luck. Okay. Okay, members. Um, thank you. Um, I suppose I, I still would have a concern in relation to the urgency and the whole uh, that has been mentioned here in the committee is the upheaval that's caused by 
restrictive measures or lockdowns as they have become known, uh, maybe unfortunately in some ways, but they're having a significant impact. And it's very clear that that whole fine test tracing system, to me, still needs work. What what's members' views in terms of alternative strategies or how how we're functioning? What what are members thinking? Um, so I have I have Paula, then Jonathan, then Pat. Paula. Um, good morning. Uh, I, I just want to follow up on Gary's point. I'd actually raised that issue about um, financial support for people who were having to self-isolate before. And, and I think that we had sort of forgotten that the Department for Communities had introduced that um, COVID support payment. And I think that we as a committee and maybe need to put more pressure on the health minister and the executive to be promoting that more. Because I think, I, I would say if you did a survey out there in the community, very, very few people would know that it actually exists. So it's, it comes back to this lack of communication and lack of joint up sort of messaging from the executive. So I think there's a body of work for us to do around that. Um, Jonathan. Thanks, Chair. No, I, I would concur with what you're saying in relation to concerns with the test trace isolate. And there's no doubt that if, if we're going to, to, to get control of the virus across Northern Ireland, indeed, that system must be operating very, very slickly in order to do that. Um, I do still have ongoing concerns, as I know many do in this chamber, regarding some of the restrictive measures that are being put in place, given that people are having to choose between lives and livelihood, and quite, quite often the two points can't be uh, differentiated. So I, I suppose probably something that I would like to hear more about in, in relation to uh, premises that have been forced to close, is there a safe way to, to open in relation to some of those con close contact and indeed hospitality where they can be COVID compliant? Because I'm sure your experience and, and many of the committee members' experiences was the same as my own. There was many close contact services, there was many hospitality institutions that were operating in a way in which was safe to do so. Uh, un unfortunately, some did not, which, which has caused uh, serious concerns, but it's unfair to have a blanket approach, whereas we could potentially look at those services and say, well, can we put measures in place uh, to ensure that they're COVID compliant uh, and ensure that uh, people's livelihoods are not put at risk? Uh, I, I think it's imperative that we do, based on the pressures that the health system are under, I think it is imperative that we do be guided by, by the scientific and medical evidence in terms of what's needed at a given time. But I do think I do think we need to improve the alternative parts of that. So Pat, then Jerry, then Pam and yes, Alea. Yeah, yes, Chair, thanks very much. And I mean I think everyone agrees that this cycle of lockdowns and restrictive measures is damaging. It's damaging to people's mental health, it's damaging to the economy and so on. Uh, but if we don't have a, a, a develop a new strategy, then it's going to have to happen again and again because as hospitals are going to be overrun, we need to do something to bring down the rate of transmission and the number of people who are being hospitalised. So we, we, need, we need to do something. And my view is we need to do something different is maybe the wrong word because it's happening in other parts of the world where societies are able to stay open and continue on almost as normal in places like Korea and Vietnam and Hong Kong, Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, you know, and, and, and that's not to say there are no restrictions at different times. There, there are, of course, but it, it, it all comes back to this issue of finding where the virus is. And the biggest difficulty in trying to find it is that there are people who have it but who don't have any symptoms. So we have to try and find them. Uh, and the difficulty here is that we only test people who have symptoms. 
and that's the first problem. Uh, so, you know, and, and I accept there are difficulties around capacity and testing, and that may change in the near future if, if we can bring in this rapid testing. But we also need to be able to, to trace. And I made the point to the Minister early that I, earlier that I think there's a fundamental flaw in the maths that are underpinning the contact tracing operation. And I mean, I know people were uh, unhappy with my uh, questioning of the PHA a few weeks ago, uh, and the Minister has written about that and, and uh, criticised the tone I used. But there was no fundamental criticism of the issues that I was raising. First of all, the PHA and whoever did their modelling uh, and were told it was experts uh, underestimated, very, very seriously underestimated the number of cases. But even uh, ac accepting that there, that there was a mistake, the, the mistake goes further than that because they're only recruiting enough people to deal with positive cases. Well, that's not what contact tracing is about. Contact tracing is about <coughs> tracing the people who were in contact with the positive cases. And I put it to the minister, the ECDC say that in, in cases where there's no lockdown, the average number of close contacts is between 7 and 20. Let's say for average, it's, we, we take 10 as a number, just for argument's sake. And for a week there, we were averaging nearly 1,000 cases a day. So that's 10,000 people who need to be <coughs> traced every day. How do we do that with just 88 full-time equivalents working on contact tracing? It can't be done. Why are we not following international best practice? And, and I quoted Sam McConkey, who's an expert in infectious diseases, who benchmarked with those countries that are doing best to suppress the virus, the South needs 2,500. We need about 1,000. I, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's simple maths. That's how we do it. And, okay. and, and how does Pat, that help I'm us? Gonna have, I'm going to have to move one on. Final point, uh, Chair. Not only does it help us to fight this virus, it also helps people who have lost their jobs bring them back in, give them a contract for a year, and let them go ahead, train them up. Between four and twenty hours, according to the ECDC, it takes to train a contact tracer. Jerry, thanks, Chair. Um, I think it's dangerous uh, for people to, you know, allude to or dance around a, an approach which effectively lets the virus rip. I think it's very irresponsible and dangerous. I mean, Tom Black said it would be an act of vandalism if hospitality opens up again. I prefer to listen to him, to be frank, than, uh, than Sammy Wilson. And if people are, are genuinely concerned about hospitality workers, which uh, I am and others may be, uh, back to the United Hospitality Rescue Plan, there is a motion in the Assembly uh, about that to protect those workers. The Sheriff Pat's concern about contact tracing. I think what we need to adopt, if you want to seriously avoid in and out of lockdown, uh, is a zero COVID approach, and we're <coughs> far away uh, from that. Just on the point of the isolation grant, um, I mean, the Minister seemed to say that it's there. 
Um, if that's the case, then I think people need to learn about it, know about it. Because um, I've been told by people working in the community sector that they have applied for it. It was on a website, and then they, they tried to ring up about it, and it disappeared. So I don't know what status it's at. I think we need some clarity on it. Uh, and if it is available, I think people need to be told that it's there because people will be uh, feeling a sense of security that they can isolate. As hard as it is, they can isolate with financial protection in place. So I would like to just suggest, Chair, that we write to finance or communities, whoever's responsible, just to get some clarity on, on where that's at. Yeah, members content to write to communities, I think it is, in the first instance, to write to communities and get more information on that. Thank you. Um, the other thing is, just before I come to uh, Pam and then Arlea, is where we are located at the present time, so we are in a situation where additional restrictions have been brought in. That was to provide a breathing space to the health service. That space must be used not only by people out there who are making all these sacrifices and doing all of the right things and doing and it, and, and the minister has reported this working, but it's also incumbent to me on the department to use that space to bring forward a strategy. And as a committee, you know, do we need to consider maybe something along the lines of a motion to urge that that fine test race is prioritised and put in place? Is that is that something we should we should be considering? Or Leah, or sorry, uh, Pam first, and then Arlea. Yeah, Chair, firstly, I wouldn't disagree with that comment around um, maybe bringing a motion uh, to support that view. I think that w it would be harmless. Um, but I think I don't disagree with really many of the comments that have been made so far. But I suppose I think Northern Ireland, I think, tends to be different, as we always are. Uh, and our culture, you're comparing this country with likes of Taiwan. I get, I get where you're coming from, but we have a very different culture. I think um, other countries in the world may be more successful at, um, I don't want to say the word control, because that's very inflammatory, um, but you know, a way of kind of keeping discipline in, in, in a message <coughs> is, is different in other countries. I think here we tend to question, question a lot and um, argue a lot with, with what you're being faced with. So I think that's a real problem culture because I think it's very, very unfair on the sectors that have been closed after the the investments and the efforts that have been made uh, in order to stay open and operate safely. And I think the vast majority of them have done that very, very well. And they do, you know, feel like they've been unjustly punished, even though they have behaved so well. And I, I, I do keep coming back to the point that you know, as individuals, I'm not sure. I think Paul is right in terms of communication as well. I'm not sure that we're communicating enough. I'm not sure that the government is is putting those messages out enough. And while people may be sick of listening to the fact that they have a personal responsibility, that is that that is the ultimate truth in all of this. That if each and every one of us behaved in the appropriate way, the hands face space message yes is boring. Nobody wants to hear it anymore. But that's the truth. And if everybody kept with those very basic measures, we wouldn't need the severe restrictions. And that is the truth of the matter. But people do have a personal responsibility and have to take responsibility for their own actions. And they are they are also responsible for doing the right thing, for seeking the test, for actually inputting that code into the app if you get it. And and they're also responsible for giving accurate information into the testing and tracing system. Otherwise, it will not work. So I think there needs to be more emphasis, more communication on uh, personal responsibility in order to support the health service and in order to support the economy and, and to avoid all the bad things that come down the road because of these continuous lockdowns. Or Leah? 
Um, yeah, thanks, Chair. <coughs> I think everyone has made um, fair enough points so far, and just even on Jonathan's um, the, the points that Jonathan raised around the hospitality sector and the pressures that they're facing and people's livelihoods and jobs. I mean, at the end of the day, the more robust our, our um, find, test, trace and protect system is, that actually enhances the protections for our hospitality sector and people's jobs. So I don't think it would do any harm. Um, in fact, I think the committee should um, uh, you know, take a view and maybe bring a motion to help support the, the health department and the work that they're doing. But I don't think it would be it would do any harm in, in you know, just reinforcing um, the, the need that we all know is there for the, the system to work as well as it possibly can. Um, and I mean it is encouraging to hear the stuff around the, the pilots um, that are being designed and, and rolled out. That's all really positive news. But again, that's why I had raised with the CMO. Um, you know, it's good that the pilots are happening, but you know, if we're waiting until February to see them being rolled out, you know, we're still going to see the repercussions throughout the winter months um, of this virus spreading as as it, as it will do. Um, so I think that, and even the second question that I didn't I didn't get the opportunity to to ask it, um, but it was to um, I was going to ask the minister as a follow up. Um, around, you know, we're still having issues with something as basic, that should be basic in the middle of a pandemic, with data sharing north and south. You know, this committee is talking about travel regulations, the department's talking about travel regulations, and um, it was in our committee papers this week. I know the minister had sent a letter to yourself as chair. Um, he told us a couple of weeks ago at the committee that those issues were hopefully going to be resolved as soon as possible and there was going to be a North-South Ministerial Council meeting. But then in the letter in this week's PEC, he's saying that there's still issues there with data sharing. So there, there's, I think it's important for the committee to we should take a stance, um, as I said, and trying to support the department as well, but just around the urgency of we definitely the system that's in place. There's been a lot of hard work that's, that's been done to get us to where we are, but there's still major gaps. Things can still be improved and it does no harm for the committee to reinforce those points, I think. Yeah, and I was also very struck with the, the Minister's report that uh, in June, as we know, uh, our, the R rate was around 0.5 to 0.7. And the point about it is, had you had a robust, fine test trace isolate, you would have had a better chance of keeping it to that level, rather than the 1.4, 1.7 it rose to a number a number of weeks later, effectively. Um, so that's, that's the point of fine test trace, is to stay ahead or get ahead of the virus to a degree where you're not seeing wide, widespread and rapid transmission in the community. Um, Alan? Yeah, uh, sure. I, I certainly uh, I don't envy the task that uh, the executive have, particularly this morning when they're meeting. And I think we have to acknowledge that uh, all of us in this room that uh, belong to political parties have uh, a representative on that executive. Uh, so, you know, whatever our views are, uh, we have ministers to articulate that within the executive. But as I say, I don't envy their task. And we talk about a week's a long time in politics. Well, a, a week's a long time in the life of this virus. An awful lot can happen within a week, either uh, in a good sense or, or in a particularly bad sense. And, uh, you know, the executive are going to have to make uh, a call today about what they're maybe going to do in a week's time in relation when the four weeks of these restrictions uh, come up 
uh, for either renewal or, or to be uh, taken, out, taken out of the legislation. Um, but a lot could happen in that time. So we're, we're asking uh, medical experts to make calls today that in a week's time they maybe wouldn't be making the same medical call because things, as I say, will change either for the better or for the worse. And you know, we talk about the hospitality, uh, and, and you, we, how could you not be sympathetic with people who are unemployed at the moment or are facing unemployment? We all know people who work in the hospitality trade. But we've also heard the stories from the chair this morning about the nurses and the doctors who can't even can't even get a break to get a cup of tea uh, and, and sit down and, and catch their breath. That's one side of the equation, and the other side of the equation is the, the plight of the hospitality workers. That's the balance, and you can't look at one in isolation without looking at the other. And the hospitality trade, you know, we're hearing they're doing their absolute best to minimise the transmission, and we've heard this morning how highly contagious this virus is and how easy it is to transmit from, from one human to another. Um, and, and we're hearing, as I say, with a the hospitality team. They're doing all that they can to, to make it safe and all the rest of it. But look within this building. There's probably nobody uh, doing more uh, than the authorities in this building uh, to try and keep us all safe uh, and to try to adhere to all the regulations and, and social distancing and everything else. And yet, um, a number of MLAs uh, all got the close uh, contact alert. Uh, and we all have our theories about where we got it from, and, and we suspect it was actually from within a meeting of the, of, of the Assembly, within a little cluster of us, that somebody in that little cluster uh, must have proved positive, and the rest of us all got, uh, got the ping. So with the best will in the world, um, you can't control uh, uh, this virus. Uh, so, you know, as I say, just go back to my opening remarks, I, I, I don't envy the task that the, uh, the, the executive have uh, this morning, and I think that we just we have to try and support whatever decision that they, they decide to take. Okay, thank you. And I am conscious, members, we have a lot of other business today. We do need out of here for 1.30. There is an overflow room booked. We will have to restart. But anyway, would, 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 in terms of our role in, in support and in, in trying to ensure that during this period of time there is as a committee that we are reflecting the concerns of the sectors out there, of people who are, who are hard-pressed both within the business world but also very, very much so within the nursing world, that we would put forward a motion that the Minister brings forward a robust and a new fine test, trace, isolate and support strategy, because there are elements of that strategy that, that I think we have uncovered are not operating. Um, would, would members be content with, with uh, you know that to recognise the negative impact that COVID-19 is having on health service, uh, and, and also further recognising the physical and mental well-being of staff, patients, and the public, that acknowledges that the need for restrictions is largely linked to the inability to, to cope to suppress the virus by other means, and call on the Minister of Health to bring forward a new robust COVID-19 strategy that upscales fine test, trace, isolate support approach based on international best practice as part of an executive strategy to help avoid a cycle of lockdowns? Would people broadly be part? Chair, I think um, a motion worded in that way, no, it's not that I disagree with it, but I think it's, it's kind of putting kind of all the eggs into one basket. And I think that's, I think sometimes um, 
I think sometimes in, in our society we, we're always expecting somebody else to fix our problem and actually the power is within us and I think it, it cannot be left out and I think it, there would be a good opportunity to completely stress that personal responsibility that people do have because it's, I, I think it's not appropriate to simply say, well, if you had a better test and trace system, wouldn't have a problem. No, if actually, if we, if everybody stayed apart, better than what they're doing, then we wouldn't have the same problems. And I think that's that's an an easier solution if you can if you can actually communicate that to um, the general public, and I include us in, in that comment. So I wouldn't want to be kind of putting all the pressure on it as a this is the solution to the problem. It may be part of the solution. There's no doubt, but I think it's not. Solution. Yeah, sure. I think, um, I mean, there's probably stuff that I would maybe like to add, but as, as the motion stands, I have no problems with it. I think we need to, you know, emphasize this point and we need to say we need a stronger test and trace system in place. So I, I'm happy to support it. I think, uh, Chair, yes, I don't think any of us disagree with sending a robust letter in, 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 in the terms that you've spoken about. Uh, but uh, I'm proposing, know, sorry, Alan, I'm proposing a motion to the Assembly. Yeah. But uh, you know, I think that the, uh, w what we need to be careful about is who we actually uh, are addressing it to, um, and I think we keep slipping into this mode uh, and forgetting uh, that all these decisions around restrictions, about strategies, about everything, uh, are collective decisions of the executive. They're not the decisions of the uh, Minister of Health. The Minister of Health will, no doubt, will have make recommendations. We've heard this morning about how quickly uh, his recommendations and his reports uh, uh, get put out into the public domain, and, and, and they must be getting put out by other, uh, by other executive members uh, for it to, to be getting out into the public domain. So, you know, that, that's regrettable that that happens. But I, I, I think, you know, if, if whatever motions we're going to, the wording of it, it has to be addressed to the executive collectively, uh, as opposed to one single minister. Well, we are the we are the committee for health, I suppose, and the principal. I, and I have acknowledged with the minister that um, that that there are certainly other departments who are relevant here. However, he does have a responsibility to indicate to them what part he needs them to play in that overall system. And I think, in relation to the the personal, um, you know, the personal contract and people doing their own part, the minister has said that people have in in communities now. Work together to suppress the virus. However, it's not sustainable to do it in that restrictive way all of the time. And if people are struggling with work or with uh, the ability to isolate, given their housing circumstances, multiple occupancy housing or intergenerational housing, then there are parts of the system, and it, and it is our core role to scrutinise the Department of Health. Um, and we certainly can share the messages, and and have no particular issue with that in in calling on people to continue to do the right thing in that sense. But I think, uh, in terms of the time frame that we're in, to try to see some real change and a step change in terms of, of the system that's in place to try to avoid cycles of lockdowns. Um, Jonathan? Yeah, no, just broadly supportive if, if that's included in terms of personal responsibilities as outlined by Pam. But indeed, getting on to your last point, the emphasis that we, to avoid repeated lockdown cycle. Uh, I think you've already mentioned that, but I think that's crucial to the purpose of such a, such a motion. Okay, well, so members broadly content. Um, if we add that that element into it, um, Pam and circulate circulate the warden uh, for members. Could members sign off and agree? Is that is that the best way to? Yeah. Okay. Okay. okay thank you, members.
Um, I'm going to move on straight into our next session then, uh, which is Food Standards Agency. And we, we, uh, this item is item six. It's a briefing on the nutrition labelling, composition and standards common framework, specifically the provisional framework outline agreement and concordat, which have been developed by the Food Standards Agency in conjunction with their counterparts in Scotland, Wales and England. I refer members to your papers there at tab 6 of your pack and the summary at tab 6.2. I can advise members that officials from the Food Standards Agency are here today to brief the committee on the proposed framework and to take questions. So we would now like to welcome by video link Ms Emily Miles, who is Chief Executive of FSA, and Mrs Sharon Gilmore, Head of Standards and Dietary Health. And I could invite you now to go ahead and brief the committee, please. Thank you very much, Chair. I hope you can hear me okay. Yes, we're hearing you, Emily. Thank you. So, yes, I'm the Chief Executive of the Food Standards Agency, and I'd just like Sharon to introduce herself as well. Thank you. Hello, good morning. Sharon Gilmore and I head up the Standards and Dietary Health team here in Northern Ireland. Thank you. And if I could remind you both when you're not speaking, if you could keep your phone on mute, because it does create some problems if, if there's a phone not on mute. Uh, clearly, uh, just just when you're not speaking. So, are we going back then, uh, Emily, to yourself for the briefing? Yes, please. Thank you. So, I'll start by making some uh, some initial remarks, and we're very grateful to have this opportunity to brief the committee today. I know you've got a very full agenda. Um, so, just to remind you, the Food Standards Agency is a non-ministerial department set up in 2000 in response to the BSE crisis, and we work in Northern Ireland, in Wales, and in England. Um, and we work closely with our colleagues in Food Standards Scotland. Um, I want to offer you a briefing on the common frameworks and say something about the common frameworks in principle to start with, and then a little bit more about uh, the detail, particularly the nutrition one you described. So as you, you may already know, the four UK administrations have agreed to work together to establish common approaches known as these common frameworks in some of the areas which are currently governed by EU law um, but, but are otherwise within the competence of devolved administrations. So this is a demonstration of the commitment of the UK government, the Scottish government, the Welsh government and the Northern Ireland executive to work together to make sure that our policy making is coherent and that high regulatory standards are maintained across the UK. And so these frameworks are co-drafted by policy experts from each of the four governments and then signed off by the relevant ministers after a process of consultation. And Sharon, of course, is one of our key um, drafters in that process. Um, uh, the common frameworks are a governance framework for discussing UK-wide approaches rather than a policy position on those approaches in their own right. So they're a mechanism for consultation between the four governments. And the intention is that at the end of the transition period, appropriate mechanisms are in place to ensure good governance across this four country working. So this will enable us to maintain high levels of food safety and standards and to ensure that the consumer interest is protected and for the Food Standards Agency set up in the consumer interest, that's particularly important to us. Um, they're developed under a set of principles which were agreed by the UK government uh, and Scottish and Welsh governments at the Joint Ministerial Committee for European Negotiations, the JMC, in October 2017. And then following the re-establishment of the Northern Ireland executive earlier this year, the executive agreed to these principles in July 2020. And the principles aim to enable the functioning of the UK internal market. So they acknowledge policy divergence. They 
tend us to ensure compliance with international obligations. Uh, they also ensure that the UK can negotiate and enter into new trade agreements and international treaties, but they also enable the management of common resources across the four nations. So whilst Northern Ireland will be subjected to EU law, it will remain a full participant in the Common Frameworks programme. And the frameworks will respect the devolution settlements and the democratic accountability of the devolved administrations. They protect the Northern Ireland's place in the United Kingdom, and they also respect the Good Friday Agreement. Um, in Northern Ireland, the FSA is involved in developing three of the common frameworks. So these frameworks are the Nutrition, Labelling and Composition Standards one, which is led by DHSC, but we input into um, the Department of that's the Department of Health and Social Care. Um, we lead on the Food and Feed Safety and Hygiene Framework, and then we support DEFRA um, on the Food Compositional Standards and Labelling Frameworks. Um, and the, the three, three frameworks each obviously have three different UK government lead departments, but all the frameworks have interdependencies on each other. Because in Northern Ireland, the FSA has retained our, a full remit in relation to food safety and standards, it means that we're the lead body um, to provide input into these frameworks. I um, am accountable to the FSA board, and the FSA board set out a number of principles for EU exit and transition back in 2017. Sorry, you have just froze on us there, Emily. You just finished at 2017. We're not hearing you at the present time. I'm going to suspend a few seconds just to see can we get Emily back on the line. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate yes, Chamber Programme Yes, signed. I, I can hear you, yes. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Signed. So our meeting is now resumed, so go ahead again please, Emily. Thank you, my sincere apologies. Um, so in 2017, the FSA board set out principles for EU exit and transition, um, and uh, we want post-EU exit arrangements to be at least as effective or more effective in protecting public health, maintaining confidence in food safety and the regulatory regime, minimising disruption for consumers and in industry, and seeking to achieve as unified a system as possible in the consumer interest whilst respecting devolution arrangements. Now, the development of these frameworks has followed a phased approach, which includes in-depth reviews, ministerial citing, stakeholder engagement, and then parliamentary scrutiny. So on the nutrition and labelling framework, the draft framework has been shared with you for that parliamentary scrutiny stage. The food, on the food and feed framework, we hope formally to put that to you in the next few weeks for the parliamentary scrutiny phase. And on the food compositional and labelling framework, we're just about to enter into the stakeholder engagement phase, so it's slightly earlier on, which precedes the parliamentary scrutiny phase. So we hope to get that to you early in the new year. 
Um, FSA colleagues in Northern Ireland continue to be part of the Executive Office's Common Frameworks Forum, which provides guidance and support in the development of the frameworks. And that provides an opportunity for FSA officials to provide regular updates on our framework development. Um, I want to just say something about the way frameworks interact with some of the other cross-cutting approaches, um, uh, because obviously there are a number of different angles playing in here. So um, following the provisional JMC agreement to these frameworks, we need to review them further, considering the implications of cross-cutting elements like the UK Internal Market Bill, the review of intergovernmental arrangements and the outcomes of the UK-EU Free Trade Agreement negotiations before we finally agree these frameworks. Um, I just want to mention the Northern Ireland Protocol, which I know will be key in the minds of the committee. So common frameworks have been drafted with the Northern Ireland Protocol and the Good Friday Agreement in mind, and nothing in them will cut across the protocol's implementation. Um, the government has also committed to delivering unfettered access for Northern Ireland businesses to the whole UK market. The protocol and the differing circumstances in Northern Ireland have been considered in some depth by officials throughout the development of the three frameworks that the FSA has a hand in. The implementation of the protocol means that in some instances, Northern Ireland will not implement the same outcomes as England, Scotland and Wales. However, the frameworks mean that policy development and decisions will continue to be considered on a four-nation basis. And importantly, officials and ministers in Northern Ireland will continue to play a vital role under the arrangements agreed in these frameworks. So I, I can give the committee, if you wish, an overview of each of the three, but perhaps you'd like to tell me what you'd like to hear and we can uh, take it from there. Um, we'll maybe go to questions, uh, Emily, and, and then we'll see if there's anything outstanding then after that, but we'll maybe go to members' questions, I think. Um, or do members want to hear the detail of the other? So we'll, we'll go to questions and see if that, if that teases those out anyway, uh, Emily and Sharon. Um, you've mentioned there that there was a stakeholder engagement around this, and I take it that that stakeholder engagement was right across England, Scotland, Wales, and here. Can you give us some detail around the local stakeholders' views? How many stakeholders were involved? What were their views? What were their concerns of, of the ones here locally? Thank you. I'll ask Sharon to answer that question. Okay, thank you. Um, the stakeholder engagement happened uh, for the nutrition labelling framework about a year ago. So it happened some time ago. There was an event in London where Northern Ireland stakeholders shared with the communication of that. Um, our constitutional colleagues, the executive office, um, went to that meeting and certainly we shared all of the outcomes of it. So the, the stakeholder engagement, um, from memory, certainly there weren't anyone who travelled specifically across from Northern Ireland, but there was the BRC who operate businesses here in Northern Ireland, the Food and Drink Federation, a number of other key stakeholders who represent the UK and who represent Northern Ireland also. Okay, I, I suppose it just seems a bit strange to have a consultation only in London. I suppose it would have made sense, given the potential impact here on well food standards, but also food production, which is so heavily integrated. Um, I, I suppose I am a bit concerned that that a consultation event took place only in London, especially in 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 the modern era where we have all sorts of online abilities. And what what were the views expressed by the by those who did? Um, so you've said that. 
shared the outcomes? Yeah. Do, I, do I take it from that that the outcomes were shared rather than the process engaged with? And what, what, um, no, views, what views have they? Yeah. Sorry for interrupting. What views have they expressed in relation to it, Sharon? Okay, thank you. They certainly the documents were shared with them, and what's what certainly one of the most common views that was shared was um, stakeholders welcome engagement. They welcome the consultation, and they welcome the opportunity, particularly through future policy making, that they would be involved in all all types of the all times of the process. <laughs> So they were very much wanting to continue to be involved in that. Were there written submissions put in by those, and, and can those be shared, or a summary of the submissions be shared with the committee? Um, there weren't written submissions as such. Um, it was rather um, through this particular process and this event. Okay. Okay. It, 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 it does seem rather sparse, I have to say. Um, so I'll, I'll move on, and we, we may we may want to come back to you with, with some further information on that, Sharon. But I'll move on okay. for now to uh, what is the process by which uh, our participation in that framework would be discussed if, say, other areas, say the like of England or Wales or Scotland, or collectively decided to diverge from standards. What process then would be used to ensure that there's still uniformity here? Okay. I'll answer, I'll answer that. Um, so at the moment, there are a number, there's a policy group. There's the current structure that happens across the four nations. So the policy experts would sit on that. And so far, they've had a number of what we call dry runs of what that will look like. So between England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, um, the policy officials will meet. We all we talk through. Um, what that divergence would look like. Um, we have also developed an impact assessment document whereby there would be enhanced assessments looking at the, the, you know, the issues of the Northern Ireland Protocol and any decision that would be taken for United Kingdom, what impact that could have on Northern Ireland who will continue through the protocol to follow EU rules. So at the moment, we are, we are very much developing how that would look in the long term. There's also been an independent committee created and the nutrition labelling framework for um, nutrition and health claims and Northern Ireland and the FSA has observer status on that committee and those scientific opinions that will come out then the policy group will look at those through a risk management process of which Northern Ireland in this impact assessment will very much feed into that looking at really what impact a decision that may be implemented in Great Britain will have on the Northern Ireland businesses, on Northern Ireland consumers, through sharing of surveillance data. We have national data, nutrition surveillance data for Northern Ireland, looking at the nutritional status of Northern Ireland uh, population. That information can be fed in so to look at the impact any such decision would have. Okay. Uh, okay. And um, okay. I'll go to I'll go to other members now. So I'm going to go first to Deputy Chair Pam Cameron. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Emily and Sharon, for your attendance here today. Um, this framework covers policy areas where Northern Ireland has no freedom to follow Great Britain. Is there a real possibility that down the line it is feasible that um, a baby food, for example? Uh, produced in Great Britain will not be allowed to be sold in NI because it doesn't meet EU standards. And as well as that, I wanted to ask you how how can we improve this framework to give greater certainty to businesses operating within the NI market? 
Okay. So, um, for for sorry, for an example of a baby food that is um, in Northern Ireland, before any divergence would happen from the EU rules, from day one there will be the same rules on Great Britain as there is in Northern Ireland. So, before a decision would be made to diverge on something like a baby food, there would have to be this a rigorous new independent assessment of the need to diverge and then a risk management decision, what that change would be. And at that stage, the impact of Northern Ireland would be brought into that. So if, the, if there is a divergence, certainly if there would be a, some reason why it's not meeting EU rules, which you know, um, should probably, you know, we'd have to think what that would be, to be honest with you. Um, then we would have to look at how that could get to Northern Ireland. But certainly from a, a safety point of view at this moment in time, we've tried to look through the Nutrition Labelling Policy Group at areas where there could be changes. But at this risk management decision, at the independent assessment, um, you know, the divergence would, would be difficult to see from a food safety or from a food labelling point of view. But certainly there was divergence. The product, you know, may not be able to get into Northern Ireland because we're following EU rules. Perhaps I, I could just add um, and say that uh, in some cases divergence will be completely appropriate, but if it's considered by the, the four sets of officials on that committee that the, the proposed divergence, and that might include from EU law, was disproportionate or unnecessary, then there is a dispute resolution process in the framework that can be followed, and that can be triggered by officials or indeed by ministers from any of the, of the four nations. Um, the second thing in terms of certainty for businesses in Northern Ireland is that because the Internal Market Bill provides for um, mutual recognition, then products um, that are authorised by the EU would automatically be allowed into GB. It doesn't work the other way because of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, where uh, the, the EU rules would apply. Um, but I just wanted to mention how those two things fitted together. Okay. Thank you. I'm going to Jonathan Buckley, and then I'm going to come across on the phone to Paula Bradshaw. So, Jonathan. Thank you, Chair, and thanks for the presentation uh, so far. I suppose probably have two main concerns. Firstly, that this framework seems to have been developed in the absence of devolved government in Northern Ireland, or indeed even final agreement on the withdrawal agreement. Um, I have another real concern, of, and it has been mentioned, about how it interacts with the potential for divergence between Northern Ireland and GB <coughs> in relation uh, to food standards if and when the protocol comes into effect. So can I ask, you know, reading this document, can I ask why does the, the framework not address what seems to be the elephant in the room, that this common framework would be blown apart if either GB or the EU diverge uh, from different standards which could leave Northern Ireland at a significant economic disadvantage? Um, yeah, what, what I would say, this particular, um, this particular framework is ahead of the majority of the framework. So going through phase three, the protocol had not come into effect at that stage. And we are further meeting further parliamentary scrutiny. Um, to, to, bring, to bring into effect the protocol on this. So we have further deep dives planned for November, where the protocol will be the, the key um, piece to look at during that time. And it's certainly an area that I have been bringing forward through, through the, um, the framework and through policy discussions and through the dry runs that have been happening so far 
to bring in the impact that the protocol will have where we cannot follow um, GB rules, that we will be following EU rules. So it's about bringing that in through the structures and through the management, particularly the risk management of how that will be taken forward. Uh, and perhaps I, I can add, so I, I know that there's been heavy involvement um, by officials from the Northern Ireland Executive in, um, in the development of the frameworks over the last few months and, and before that, but I accept that's not the same as involving uh, ministers up in, uh, previous to January. Um, in terms of divergence, so there will be some cases where divergence is okay and it's appropriate. The example that I often think of is raw drinking milk, where in England, Wales and Northern Ireland we have particular risk management controls on that to ensure safety, but in Scotland it's not permitted for consumption by consumers and that doesn't affect the workings of the internal market um, in the UK. So divergence can be okay, but in some cases it won't be comfortable. What we've, what the, the intention behind this framework is that the uh, risk analysis and the scientific basis on which decisions are put to ministers is common between the four nations, so that we are trying to take as joined up approach as possible um, but there are obviously opportunities for divergence that are envisaged in the framework. I think I'm glad to see that there will be you know, further engagement on that point, because it, it's no doubt there needs to be a, ref a refreshment on this to take into account the dangers of the protocol and give the Northern Ireland departments and indeed the institutions uh, greater power to challenge such divergence if it indeed puts Northern Ireland at an economic disadvantage. So the, the, there is an opportunity for the Northern, the Northern Ireland ministers to challenge the divergence through the dispute resolution process that's in this in this framework. That's exactly what it envisages. Thank you. And I'm going then on the phones to Paula Bradshaw. Paula, are you there? You're muted there, Paula. We're not hearing you. Sorry, yeah. I, I thought it was an automatic mute. Um, good morning, ladies, and thank you very much for your presentation. I just wanted to ask about staffing levels here in Northern Ireland. You're working on this. Are they temporary um, or will they endure going forward? And who's providing the funding for that? Is that the UK government or um, is staffing covered through our Northern Ireland block grant? That's the first question. And the second question is picking up on um, the chair's comments there about engagement here in Northern Ireland. Um, it's not necessarily just, I think, as we go forward, not just about engagement, but also about communicating and ensuring that they're kept up to speed with potential changes coming down the line. And I'm just wondering, are you confident that um, our food producers, etc., are, are receiving timely and relevant information so that they can adjust as we go forward? Thank you. Okay. As regards to the staffing in Northern Ireland, yes, we have um, certainly we have taken on one further member of staff to focus on this. But we would, and I'm sure Emily would like to inform you about how we are building, particularly our capability within FSA England, or particularly around the science and the evidence that will help support us here in Northern Ireland. We're a three-country organisation, but very much the science and the evidence base it sits within FSA England. But we, as policymakers in Northern Ireland, we will take that forward through the information that we have provided. So we have certainly, we have one further um, senior executive officer taken on board, and that has come out of our uh, finances here in Northern Ireland. Um, but certainly the finances in England would help be helping to bolster the support that we will receive and the expertise that we will receive. So yeah, perhaps I can supplement that. So um, yes, we do, we're very grateful for the funding that we receive in Northern Ireland. 
um, the additional we, we received additional money um, to the tune of about 40 million pounds for our EU exit preparations, which um, spreads across a number of different areas. And I, I actually wouldn't characterise it as FSA England. It's some of it is uh, the reserved um, matters. Um, the the uh, so in the process we've been building up our risk analysis function. So we've doubled our risk assessors from 25 staff to 50 staff who are mostly scientists. We've also expanded our scientific committees. Um, so we now have an additional 300 scientific experts that we can draw on um, from academia so that we can do that very careful risk analysis. Because in effect, we've had to build up the function that um, the European Food Safety Agency has so that we can bring that back home and do that um, for the UK. And that, that, that resource is available for Northern Ireland, for Wales, and um, for England ministers, indeed. So, for example, a Northern Ireland minister can commission that um, risk analysis function for its, its own purposes, if, if desired. Um, on the point about engagement, I accept your point about engagement. I think it's really important, um, and I think we perhaps could have done better there. Um, I, I think it's important to remember, though, that this is a framework for governance. It's not actually a, a policy decision-making moment, so it doesn't set out changes to particular rules it just sets out an approach to how we discuss those rules okay thank you um, i'm going then to Arlea. yes thanks very much chair um so in the in the document in our committee pecs um i know obviously when it, years have been designing this common framework um it was referenced a few times about the the close working relationship that you have had um naturally with your counterparts in england scotland and wales um, I would just like to ask if you could outline what conversations, if any, um, have taken place with your equivalent in the south of Ireland. Um, that would be my first question. And just secondly, um, who will be the representative from the north who's going to sit on the, the policy group? I don't know if you have someone assigned to that group already, but um, that's my second okay. question. Thank you. Thank you. And I will answer this question if, if you don't mind. We have a really good working relationship with the Food Safety Authority in Ireland, and we've been very careful through the development of the framework that there would be nothing that would prevent that cooperation from continuing. So we have a memorandum of understanding with the Food Safety Authority of Ireland, and part of that memorandum of understanding includes the nutrition labelling and health legislation. So we as a policy group and as a senior management group in Northern Ireland meet with the Food Safety Authority on a regular basis um, to talk through particular areas and particular areas where we can join up. Um, so on the nutrition end at the moment, we are looking at areas, for example, of food supplements um, and also on the wider dietary health areas as well. So we have had regular conversations and we continue to do that with the Food Safety Authority of Ireland. Um, sorry, second, I can't quite remember your second question there. Just about, um, have you appointed who's going to represent the, the North yes. on the policy group? Yes, yeah, so certainly I head up the team um, and there's a colleague, a senior official, in, is called Kerry Gribben. So yes, we have. We have appointed, um, and Kerry so far has been um, carrying out a number of dry runs um, with the four, within the Four Nation policy group. Um, looking at certain areas where potentially, for example, authorization of a health claim, how that would come out of the scientific committees. The scientific committees had a number of dry runs as well. And then the, you know, they received the scientific opinion through stakeholder engagement and so forth. Um, they will do risk management decision uh, um, you know, within a certain period of time is uh, to parallel what happens in Europe at the moment. So yes, we very much have one appointed. 
That's great. Thanks very much. Okay. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Emily and thank you, Emily and Sharon. Um, I think there's no doubt that members will probably want to see it again when the impact of the protocol is worked in. So I suppose in that sense there is there is more to do. Um, I'd like to thank you for coming to the committee this morning, both and for briefing us and for providing answers to the questions. Emily, is there any other information within the three that you had outlined there at the start that you think will be useful for committee members that hasn't been touched upon? Thank you for asking. Um, no, I, I think um, you've got other opportunities to take the other two frameworks in front of you, and we should just take the opportunity then to, to get into it in more detail, I suspect. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you very much then, and uh, that that that's fine for now. We'll have a quick discussion on it as well. But thank you for joining our meeting this morning. Thank you, and good luck in the future in, in the complicated area that you're working in. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Excuse me. So sorry. Could I maybe just say, if it's okay, um, we do have a summary of the stakeholder event that did take place, and we're happy to share that with the committee if we felt that that would be useful. Yes, Sharon, I think that would be members would appreciate that. Thank you very much. That that would be useful. Thank you. Send that on okay. to us, please. Yeah. Okay. Thank okay. Thank thank you, Sharon. Thank you. Okay. Okay, members, um thoughts or thoughts or views on that. I suppose I, I, I was genuinely a wee bit taken aback there at the lack of at the lack of engagement. I'm wondering I suppose we should have a look at the summary when it comes, but but would we have the ability or could we look at taking some views ourselves? Um, is that something that we could maybe usefully do? Because I, I am a bit concerned that, that this one event was a kind of a, a make, or, make or break and, and that there's been very little input. Any other thoughts, Jonathan? Sure, I, I would share those concerns. I think uh, given the fact that the majority of this framework uh, took place during a lapse of government here, there is an essential need for not only this committee but indeed uh, the agencies to engage uh, proactively uh, with the concerns that are already existing. We already know what they are in relation to, to the protocol and the withdrawal agreement. And, and I think that going forward, it, it's, it's crucial that, that we try to um, tease out what those potential uh, concerns would be, in particular in relation to divergence, and you, you mentioned particularly divergence between potentially England, Scotland, Wales with Northern Ireland, but even as such potential that the EU may move away in some form as well. So there's, so there's a lot of concerns and a lot of unanswered questions that I, I think we need further scrutiny of. Yeah, okay. I'm going to go then to Paula on the phone. Paula? Okay, it's, yeah, I wouldn't really have much to add in that. I do think that the communication and keeping them posted, I think just with COVID, it's probably more difficult for the food producers, etc., to actually keep themselves up to speed. So I think we do have a role. So very supportive of your suggestion, Chair. Yeah, and actually I'm just thinking in, in, in terms of refining that, potentially maybe what we should do is ask the FSA to do a further consultation because they have the contacts with yeah. all the groups and, and indeed, I suppose, in some senses, they may be best placed to do it. Would that be maybe a better idea to ask them to do a further consultation to gather views? Um, okay, members are agreed with that. Jerry. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. I agree with that. And, and you know, if I picked up the answer to Orlea's question correctly, um, I think there's ongoing relationships with the South, but no specific engagement. If I heard that correctly around this, uh, these proposals. So if we can polish up that somehow as well for the relevant bodies, I think that would be support. Uh, that would be useful as well, sir. And um, what do you mean, Jerry? I'm not clear. 
Are you asking them to outline outline what their engagement is? Yeah, and then if we can see if, if all the relevant organisations have been contacted, then that's fine. But if they haven't, then there's gaps in, in the correspondence, and then we can obviously hone in on organisations that should have been contacted but may not have been. Is that yeah. okay? We also would have the opportunity to speak with, uh, in terms of the Brexit briefing, we can raise issues issues around this area. So we have a further opportunity. So, um, on Jerry's point there, yeah, go yeah, ahead. I on. think what I took from from um, the answer was that they do have a good um, working relationship with the FSA in the south, but it wasn't necessarily specific to the conversations around this common framework. Um, that's yeah, that's like enough, so, what, what specific engagement they've had with, the, the with the, their colleagues in the South in, in relation to the common framework? Yep. Okay. So, members are content then that, that we, uh, we, de we defer then pending the further briefing and these further pieces of work around this that we, we just defer our consideration of this for now? Mm -hmm. Members content. Okay, thank you, members. I will go to a very short break there before we get our officials on the line for the next items, which are seven to ten around a number of statutory rules. But we will take a short break now. Of uh, resume again at eleven fifteen. Thank you, members. Signed. Okay, thank you, members. We're now resuming with. Um, we're going to items seven to ten. So we're moving to consideration of seven statutory rules, members. Four on coronavirus restrictions and the other three on travel restrictions. I can advise members that departmental officials are here to brief the committee on the regulations and to take questions, and we will then consider each SR in turn. We will begin with the four statutory rules on general coronavirus restrictions, all of which are to be debated in the Assembly on Monday. I refer members to the papers at tab 7, including the clerk's memo at tab 7.1. Also relevant is a reply from the Minister, which is at tab 16.5, since that relates to a number of matters. So I'd now like to welcome by video link Mr David Hughes, who is Director of the Department of Finance, and Mr Alistair McGaines, Principal Officer with the Department of Health. So I'd now like to go ahead, gentlemen, and invite you to brief our meeting this morning. Um, this morning, I will be speaking to the three sets of restrictions regulations um, and Alistair on the face covering regulations. Um, so the first of the restriction, regu reg restriction regulations in front of us is Amendment Number 8. And these set out the restrictions applied to the Derry City and Straban District Council area from the 5th of October. Um, and then the second and third are those restrictions uh, placed across Northern Ireland from the 16th of October, that's to say uh, the number nine regulations, and a subsequent set of amendments, the number 10 amendments, uh, which address particular details in number nine. Uh, the committee will recall the number eight regulations placed a number of significant restrictions on the Derry City and Stravan district uh, in an effort to slow a significant rise in cases there, uh, which actually had led it to having one of the highest levels of infection um, in the UK and, and, and more widely. Uh, specifically, those regulations placed restrictions as follows. Uh, restrictions on indoor gatherings uh, of more than one household, except in a number of very uh, clear instances. Uh, they placed restrictions on the hospitality industry um, so that only deliveries, takeaways, drive-throughs um, and outdoor service would be permitted. Restrictions on hotels and guest houses uh, so that they were only able to serve food and drink to residents um, and at receptions and, and uh, wakes. Um, the regulations go on to close specified indoor facilities 
Um, and that includes libraries where there is a provision for the library to operate an order and collect service. And finally, there's a general restriction on outdoor gatherings of over 15 people, with exceptions for sports events without spectators and for emergencies. And those restrictions were in place from the 5th of October um, and subject to statutory review after 14 days. However, they were overtaken and repealed uh, by the next set of regulations. The uh, amendment number nine regulations were made on the 16th of October. These introduced restrictions across Northern Ireland for a four week period uh, and are substantially the restrictions under which we're currently operating. Uh, they replaced both the dairy and Strabane restrictions and also those restrictions put in place by the number four amendment number four regulations. Uh, those are the ones determined by postcode initially in Belfast, parts of Lisbon and Ballymena, and then across Northern Ireland. Now, there have been three subsequent amendment regulations, numbers 10, 11 and 12, uh, made to address points of detail in the number nine regulations. It's number 10 that's in front of us today. And what I'll do is I'll just go through the key elements of the number nine regulations and refer to where number 10 has amended them slightly. So in the number nine regulations, uh, restrictions in a number of areas, uh, restricts overnight stays anywhere other than at home or in the home of a linked household, or that's, that's to say the bubble. Now, an individual may be able to give an, a reasonable excuse for an overnight stay in other circumstances, and other circumstances, and the regulations uh, list such reasonable excuses. The regulations restrict gatherings in the home or in a private garden, no indoor gatherings involving members of more than one household, and no outdoor gatherings of more than six, from no more than two households. Uh, and that six doesn't include children under 12. Uh, it's worth noting the definition of home in this case is not just a private dwelling, but has also been extended to include self-contained holiday accommodation, um, including caravans, self-catering cottages, and so on. Uh, and a number of exemptions apply, um, and those are listed. The regulations place restrictions on sporting events, so there to be no sporting events except elite events, indoor one-to-one -one coaching without contact, outdoor non-contact sport of 15 or fewer participants. Now, the number 10 regulations have uh, ensured that dance is included in the definition of sport for the purposes of these regulations. Uh, there are restrictions on all gatherings, uh, distinct from gatherings in homes, so that no more than 15 people can gather together either indoors or outdoors. And there are exemptions there allowing for workplaces where work cannot be done from home, for emergencies, weddings and funerals, the services of worship. And the amendment number 10 regulations adds an exemption for education and training and also an exemption for blood donation sessions. Uh, the regulations close a number of specific businesses and services, including close contact services, such as hairdressing, driving instruction, campsites and caravan parks for touring caravans, museums and galleries and a wide range of indoor leisure and entertainment facilities. It's worth noting the number 10 amendment regulations ensure that therapies provided to elite athletes are not restricted under the definition of close contact services. Also clarifies that motorcycle driving instruction is not restricted and it provides an exemption for the use of caravan sites for accommodation in emergencies. Hotels and other serviced accommodation are closed except for specific categories of resident those are resi resident when the restrictions came in place, those are resident for work purposes, vulnerable people, and anyone not able to return to their own home due to an emergency. 
regulations place restrictions on the hospitality sector uh, to the effect that businesses cannot serve food or drink to be consumed on the premises, can sell to order off the premises before 11 p.m. Takeaways can sell for consumption off the premises to 11 p.m. Off sales from an off license, but not from a pub or bar, they carry on until 8 p.m. And there are exemptions there for alcohol sales in airports, for hotel and guest house restaurants serving residents, for hotel minibars, for workplace canteens, um, for harbour terminals, airports, motorway service stations. There's also a provision to ensure that an area adjacent to premises where seating is provided is to be treated as the premises. Amendment number 10 regulations adds an additional exception for long distance ferries. Paragraph 9 requires face coverings to be worn in places of worship except when at a seat and with an exemption for the couple at a wedding or a civil partnership. And there are new restrictions on weddings and funerals limiting numbers to 25. There's a provision allowing small receptions to take place on that weekend immediately after the regulations were made, otherwise wedding receptions and events associated with the funeral are restricted. Libraries are able to operate a collection service and to admit people to use internet facilities. Uh, now, obviously these are extensive restrictions and they must be understood in the context of a, a significant rise in levels of infection, potentially very significant pressures upon the health service. Um, and I make the point, obviously, these decisions are not taken lightly um, and the restrictions uh, are not to be in place any longer than necessary. Okay, thank you, David. And then we're going across to Alistair. Yes, uh, good afternoon. Um, I'm here to cover the uh, face covering regulations. So you'll recall then that there were two initial sets, one covering transport, uh, the second covering retail. And this, this third set then brought together a package of measures uh, that have been put forward by departments uh, and then agreed by the executive. And then uh, they came to the Department of Health then to make the regulations. So this current set then, it requires face coverings in private buses, coaches and taxis, and that includes the driver, unless they're behind a partition, uh, in a vehicle being used to train for driving tests, uh, and that's including the instructor or examiner, uh, on aircraft and in an airport. Uh, it requires a face covering then when you're a customer of a restaurant, cafe, bar or public house unless seated. Uh, we brought in uh, banks and similar financial institutions, which we had omitted from the retail regulations. Um, we included then those parts of buildings used by Northern Ireland civil service departments that are open to the public to access services. And finally, then it uh, required a face covering for staff in retail or hospitality settings, unless they're protected by a screen or a partition or unless they're in an area of the premises not accessed by the public and they can maintain social distance. So all the exemptions from the pre uh, to covering carried across from the previous regulations. And we added one additional power then to enable airport and airline staff to require an individual to remove their face covering temporarily uh, for identification purposes. And one other thing I suppose to mention, just the, the examiner of statutory rules picked up a, a minor uh, legislative reference which we need to correct in the next regulations. So that's, uh, if you have any questions, that's my very brief summary of the, the latest face covering regulations. Alistair, just when you're next back on, just check if your camera's on. We weren't, we were able to hear you there, okay, but not to see you. 
And if I could just reiterate to everyone that's online, can you ensure that your microphone is muted when you're not speaking, because it interferes with the sound and the picture and sometimes. So thank you both for that. Um, and I suppose my first question would be, considering that we're now into the, this halfway through that four-week restrictions that have been brought in recently, what is your assessment of how the restrictions imposed by Amendment 9 are working to reduce the spread of transmission? So that's David, probably. I yes, I don't. I don't have um, specific figures, um, uh, but I would. Uh, my understanding is that these are effective, and in the way that the um, Derry and Straban figures uh, improved over time, and there is always a time delay um, in seeing improvement once restrictions are put in place. But the that improvement was seen certainly with the time um, under the Derry and Straban uh, restrictions earlier, um, where I think uh, the figures were around 320, 330 per 100,000 of population at the point at which the restrictions came in. Um, it rose and continued to rise quite significantly, I think even in, uh, hitting over 600 out of 100,000 population, um, but now is back down to 300 per 100,000 of population, and you can see the impact and the positive impact that those have had. Um, I don't have to hand the figures for all of Northern Ireland reflecting those two weeks uh, since the number nine restrictions came in. Okay, thank you. And um, what does, in relation, and you've mentioned there, David, uh, Darian Straban, can you tell us what your reason is for seeking confirmation of Amendment 8, which was the one that brought that in, even though the bulk of its provisions have now been revoked? Uh, I think um, with a statutory instrument of this kind, um, it's quite correct to take it through its proper process so that the time in which it was in force is legitimised in effect. Okay. Thank you. I'm going to go to members now. I'm going to Alan first. Uh, thank you, Chair. Uh, just uh, referring to uh, the SR 224 Amendment 9, um, uh, I understand that the Executive may well be uh, discussing aspects of that uh, today, but notwithstanding whatever they decide, uh, I'm trying to establish uh, uh, the, uh, just exactly when um, th this regulation will actually uh, cease uh, to be a legislation uh, because I've been getting asked uh, questions, you know, from hairdressers and barbers. When can I start taking appointments again? Now, my reading uh, of the legislation is that the, it states that it operates from the time uh, that the SR was made, and it was made at 10:30 p.m. on Friday, the 16th. Of October, um, it then states that uh, it will commence on the date, uh, and the date obviously was the was the 16th. So the my reckoning is that the four weeks actually expires at midnight on Thursday, the 12th of the 11th. Uh, so if there was no ruling from the executive uh, today or next week. Uh, my reading of it would be that hairdressers then could commence to take um, appointments actually from midnight on Thursday night. But would that my interpretation of that be correct? Then? 
<clears throat> I would I would certainly I uh, certainly share your interpretation that yes, um, because it says it's the period of four weeks commencing on the date uh, that is the 16th of October, um, and therefore that period comes to an end at midnight on the Thursday the 12th. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. And I'm going on the line then, on the telephone there, to Paula Bradshaw. Paula, uh, do you have a question there? <clears throat> yes, thank you very much. I think my question is to Alistair. It's in relation to the face coverings. Um, and you listed the, um, the third set of introductions of measures there around <laughs> <laughs> Was there ever a time when you considered just having a blanket approach that people should wear face coverings when indoors. We see that across Europe. It's just so much easier. You walk in through a door with whether it has four walls and a roof, you put a mask on. Um, you know, they, they talked about the um, civil service or the public service and it's only where it's front facing, customer facing, but we know that there are offices with a lot of people. We now know a lot more evidence about how the, the droplets are spread and how um, the lack of ventilation in closed spaces. So I'm just wondering, is that something that you're looking at or was it discounted? And if it was, why? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so uh, which of you would like to take that question of Paula's in relation to face masks? You're on mute, David, if you're speaking. We're not hearing anything. And I, I think this one must be for Anastic. I'm not aware of the background of these. Could you repeat that, David? I think this, this one, one will need to be for Alistair. Oh, sorry, I'm not yes, sure I can answer that. Okay, Alistair, did you did you hear that question there from Paula? Okay, Alistair, we're not seeing you, Alistair. I'm not sure if your camera's switched on, but we're, we have a black screen. Um, so can you can you hear us there, Alistair? Okay, I'm going to suspend for a minute to see if we get Alistair on the line. That chamber, program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed.
Okay, so yeah, we're back online now. Hopefully, we have Alistair online with us. So, could I ask you just Paula to repeat the question for Alistair, please? Well, um, in, in brief, it was to ask: um, Was there ever consideration given for just a blanket ban of masks indoors, anywhere where there's four walls and a roof, so that we wouldn't have this sort of complicated list of when you should wear a mask and when you wouldn't? Because we know so much more. There's so much more evidence now about how the virus is transmitted indoors. Thank you. Yes. Um... Certainly when I was brought in to do the initial set of regulations for uh, retail settings, it, it was talked about and certainly the advice remains that if you're inside you should wear a face covering. Um, we, we didn't do it uh, obviously for the retail settings. I think the idea was that if we could get 80% compliance we'd be reasonably content with that. And we wanted to make it an easy to understand message. We, we basically thought if my thinking was high street shopping. so. If you we didn't want to get into, I remember there was a lot of discussion about funeral directors and should you require people to do that. My thinking was most people go shopping most days, so if you can get the 80% compliance for the sort of mass activities, then you would achieve the objectives of the regulations. Certainly it hasn't been discussed to my knowledge since then. Um, thank you. But I understand you're talking about almost the behavioural science aspect of it. I'm now talking about the, the scientific evidence around how the, the droplets and the virus spreads and then unventilated or poorly ventilated spaces like offices, especially the longer you stay in them. And so a lot of the thinking at the start around if you're passing somebody in a supermarket, you can infect them. We now know that it's, it's, it's more when you're probably sitting in a wedding, sitting beside somebody for a number of hours. So we have moved on in terms of our understanding of this virus. So is it not something that you need to go back to and revisit? I'll certainly, I'll, I'll bring that forward out of this meeting. It's, um, it hasn't been something that any discussions that I've been involved in. I mean, I can, I can check it out and come back to you. Thank you, thank you. <coughs> thank you, Paula and Alistair. I'm going then to Jerry. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, Seth. Uh, just two questions around the face, uh, face mask um, regulations. Has there been any further conversation uh, about development strategy around introducing free masks? I raised this with the Minister uh, on the Chamber, uh, but I think this is Im Im imperative in terms of ensuring that uh, people are, are wearing them and, and complying. So, um, if there's been any further conversations in either department around that. Uh, and the final question is around massage therapy. Um, my reading of the regulations are that it, uh, massage therapy is available for elite athletes. Um, um, I suppose the question I would have is, I mean, there's people with sort of severe uh, physical disabilities. Jerry, uh, I, I, I can't hear what you're saying, I'm afraid. I, I'm not picking up at all. Do you want to suspend or do you want to try again? I think to go closer to the mic, Jerry, maybe. Yeah. Try, try speaking directly into the mic. Can you hear me now? Yeah, that's it. Okay, right. thanks. Uh, yeah, just the first question was around free masks. Um, I raised it with the Finance Minister uh, already in the Chamber. But has there been further uh, discussions in either department or both around mm. developing free masks? Uh, because I think that's an important aspect to support people and ensure they're being compliant, but also uh, taking the correct uh, public health measures. Uh, the second question is around massage therapy. Uh, my reading of the regulations are that um, it's allowed for people who are elite uh, athletes to scrape as such. Um, what's the rationale for allowing it for those sections of society, but not people with, say, arthritis or um, severe with disabilities who would see it and use it um, as, a, as a form of, of important health care? So, um, 
think it's important there's no discrepancy in that, but if there's a, a health rationale, public health rationale for it, I, I'm all ears. Thanks. Okay, Alistair. I'm, I'm sorry, I think I'll, I'll come in on that. I, okay. I missed some of that. I think the microphone is faulty there. I didn't catch all of what, what you were saying. But um, about the, uh, uh, the therapies, if, if you look in um, uh, paragraph one of, of, of Schedule 2, as inserted under the, uh, the number nine uh, regulations, um, the close contact services are listed there, and then it makes uh, an exception for any of those close contact services which are ancillary to a medical or health service or social care service. So if there, is, is, if there are any close contact services which are part of a treatment program, as you described, they would be fine. Um, can I sorry to cut through? Can, the, I, can I just clarify? Sorry. So, so mm. those um, massage therapies uh, are sort of described. Uh, Organisations they they can open if they're providing sort of health healthcare, as you stated. Is that correct? If what they're providing is ancillary to a medical or health service or, or social care service, then those aren't restricted. Um, and we've added to that to ensure that the sports therapy and so on which would be provided to elite athletes would also not be restricted. Um, that just reflects the fact that the, the elite sport has not been restricted uh, and therefore the, the, the therapies that are associated with that can continue. Does, does that, to, to clarify that further, just because I don't fully understand myself, are you saying, David, that a referral, you need to have a referral for the therapy to allow the therapist to engage in it? I'm not sure what um, would be required to demonstrate that what is being provided is ancillary to a medical or health service. Um, perhaps I can come back to you with more detail on that. Yeah, I think that would be yeah, helpful. Sure. Just, just for clarity, I've been contacted by people who rely on you know, massage as a form of therapy, and it appears to be there's a bit of discrepancy or, or lack of clarity, so I think it's, it's important that we get that. And just a quick answer on the mask issue, please, if we can. Yeah, so is that question for masks maybe more relevant to Alistair? Would that be so? Um, I, it, it's something I haven't been aware of, I have to say. Um, I mean, I, I'm not particularly involved in the discussions about, about the policy here. It's really just brought in to do the legislation. So those conversations may have happened, but I'm not, I'm not privy to them. But I mean, we can come back to you on that. Okay, um, and we're going now to Pam. Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you for your attendance at, at committee today. Um, just on the back of Jerry's question there around um, services that are allowed, close contact services are allowed to operate uh, for health reasons. I was just trying to find the message of where it came from. Somebody asked me recently about um, flotation. Um, so I'm just wondering, uh, when you're looking into that, could you? check that as well, flotation, and it's, an, it's for, for health needs. Uh, but my question was really around um, whether you have, in relation to any of those regulations that we're looking at today, any update on enforcement issues, enforcement of these particular regulations, and um, any available statistics around what enforcement has happened and who specifically is taking responsibility for that enforcement? 
I'm afraid there isn't anything I can contribute today about enforcement. Um, if I can come back to you on on the degrees and and the the extent of enforcement um, and how it's been taken forward, um, I may need to do that separately. Okay, please do. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, go ahead, Pat. Uh, just David Williams. There, I'm wondering if this legislation in any way affects chiropractors or osteopaths, that type of profession. My understanding is that um, those the close contact services, which would be um, uh, ancillary to medical health. Um, there would be a number of um, services, such as you describe, um, chiropractors and so on, um, that would fall within that within that category. Um, my understanding is colleagues in, in, in Department of Health would be able to set out those uh, services which they they would recognise as being part of that um, uh, that carve out, as it were. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Chair. And I suppose probably being new to the committee, I'm probably as bewildered as many in the public are that uh, through the processes that we work in this place, that here we are two weeks into the restrictive measures and we're looking at the regulations only now. The fact being that we're debating um, regulations in the Assembly next week, whenever they've been introduced. Uh, and I suppose probably Jerry's comments and questions, which I have had as well in relation to some therapies, uh, about how we can come to a committee like the Health Committee and two weeks in we still haven't got the exact clarity that we need uh, because many of these businesses, they're lively, they've been forced to close because of the perceived um, nature of the restrictions as opposed to probably what the fact are. And, and I, I say that probably, I realise the huge level of work that's going on into designing them and I suppose a lot of my comments, I have been critical of the regulations at, at the time and the restrictions and I suppose I'll probably keep a lot of those co that commentary for the debate uh, next week. But what I would want to say is that the analysis that was used, and it has been mentioned, it seems to have been more behaviour analysis focused as opposed to factual hard evidence, uh, and some of it is very conflicting. I suppose probably we can look at examples such as uh, church services remaining open, uh, albeit social distance measures in place, but yet then when we look at the likes of a funeral, uh, that numbers are significantly reduced, whereas potentially they're in the same building that could facilitate larger numbers at social distance. Uh, I look at others such as you know, close contact services as hairdressers, etc. You know, where measures were put in place, we are more likely to look at behavioural analysis as opposed to the hard factual data. Um, in relation to, to Jerry's point in, in SR 2020-225 and, and the therapies, um, Perhaps whenever you're get, getting clarity on that matter, could you also maybe outline um, if these therapies are provided via a, a home facility, a business operating from a home, um, does that cause problems or does it have to be within a medical setting? Uh, also, and I see in SR 2020-225 in relation to uh, dance as well, could you maybe give me a clarity on dance classes as opposed to uh, are they permitted or are they not uh, if from the educational perspective? So these are just a couple of things that uh, I would need clarity on. And again, a lot of my commentary there, I, I, I take it that you may not be able to answer, but it is something for debate and indeed probably something to take away as to the retrospective nature 
of this committee and indeed the Assembly discussing regulations, which in fact deserves a lot more commentary within the Assembly before they should be passed. Thank you. I can certainly, I can certainly come back on one or two of those points uh, immediately. Um, on the on the setting, there isn't a specific um, definition based upon setting, but you will see um, actually at the bottom of page two there of uh, the number nine regulations um, that where um, the business operates out of a home, um, then it, it is deemed to be business premises, um, and and that is is recognised as uh, as an element of that of some of these services that that's how they're delivered. Um, on dance, the um, there was some discussion as to initially whether dance was a sport um, when we're talking about a sporting event. Um, and for the purposes of ensuring clarity that in these con in this context, it does need to be considered alongside what we more normally consider sport, um, that any sporting event means sport, uh, means, sorry, a sporting event means a gathering for the purpose of exercise, competitive sport, recreational sport or sport training, and that includes dance. So dance class would be a sporting event, um, uh, and therefore um, the restrictions apply. Okay, and yeah. Chair, ju just in closing, I don't know if, if I could get this information now, but has there been any analysis or data in relation to the counterproductive um, potential with the uh, improper use of a face mask? For example, we know of many in society that um, are repeatedly using the same mask, potentially not uh, washing or replacing, or indeed disposables as well. Has there been any evidence to suggest that that improper use of face masks might actually be having a counterproductive effect in relation to case numbers? Yeah, go ahead, Alistair. <laughs> so I was just saying, it's, it's not conversations I'm aware of, but uh, I, I can find out and bring that back to the committee. Okay, I'll go to Orlea, Orlea Flynn. Yes, thank you. Um, just back to the face coverings, um, I'm just wondering if, and this may be something that the, the um, examiner of statutory rules is already looking at, but see, we're... Um, they're talking about um, junior pupils wearing the face masks on um, public transport or when they're they're going back and forth from school. Um, will it not be the case that um, kids then at a certain age who aren't yet in secondary education <coughs> are required to wear the face covering while they're on public transport, but they're not required to wear it in retail um, settings and in shops? I'm just wondering, is that maybe a, a possible drafting error or a bit of um, confusion if it comes to that and kids have to work on the school bus, um, but they don't have to work in, in shops and retail premises? Next set of regulations along. Um, we, we did consider that. Uh, did it follow that because we wanted children to wear masks in school buses, did it follow that they should also wear them in shops? 
the, the instruction we got was just school transport, so we left it at that. If, if that's something you think needs to be picked up, then we can consider it next time, certainly. Yeah, I'm just thinking about probably around just the consistency of the, the messaging. I mean, it's it's probably difficult enough for adults, never mind when you're dealing with younger children. And if if the if they have to word on the, the school bus, I just think it's it's the messaging may come across, you know, a wee bit mixed. Um and uh, it, it may cause it may cause issues, but it was just to flag it up and, and to see if you were looking at it and considering it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, um, David and Alistair, I have to say I am I am concerned in relation to some of the issues that have, have arisen here today. But the process that's involved here, and we do understand the urgency of it, but the pro th this urgency means that SRs are being made without consultation. There's no impact assessment, um, and as part, so so we're then forced to scrutinise them post hoc. And in relation to carrying out that scrutiny, we do need, and I think it's a reasonable expectation that we will be getting information specific to how they are how they are working what the predicted modelling is as to how they're going to work by the end of a given period. And too often in this meeting today now we have heard that information will have to be brought back to the to the members. I think it is reasonable of this committee to expect that the, that the people who are coming to the committee will have the answers and will have been involved in the, in the relevant conversations. And I think I am I'm, I'm asking you to reflect this in the strongest terms back to the department that this this issue must be addressed. Um, there's also been information requested by members. We are going into the Assembly to debate these measures on Monday, and I would like that that information is with members in advance of Monday. Okay? Um, so I, I, do, I do understand, we, we fully understand the urgency, but what we as a committee cannot do is countenance complacency in relation to our scrutiny, and I think it's reasonable that we would have the information as to how the measures are impacting and what the predicted impact of them. So I'd like to thank you for your contribution today, um, and I, I would like to ask you to bring our concerns very directly back to, to the department and to ensure that the members have the information that you have uh, committed to providing, that that information would be with us in a very, very timely fashion. Okay, Alistair and David, thank you very much. Thank you. I can, let, I can now you. let you... Yeah, go ahead, David. Did you want to come back in there? Or Alistair? <laughs> okay. Um, okay, members. Um, any other comments members wish to make? No, sure. I, I think I think your last point was absolutely right, um, and I think it's something that the public demand of us in terms of elected representatives. They're, they're coming to us to ask ask basic questions about how these regulations impact upon their livelihood and uh, and indeed their lives. Um, so, so it is crucial, and I suppose probably, and I don't take away from the fact being that a lot of this has had to, to have happened because of the seriousness of the situation, but it is only right and proper that um, we as elected members, not only in this committee, but indeed the wider assembly, uh, have the ability to not only input into any future regulations, but also uh, debate and tease out how they might impact upon people's lives in in a way that actually the regulations maybe not have, may, may not have intended. So I, I suppose probably I'm in support of what you're saying there, and, and going forward there has to be another way of, of doing this in relation to uh, regulations um, 
coming, and albeit it's, it's probably because of the situation we're in, but coming uh, at a delayed rate, not only to the committee, but indeed the debate in the Assembly. So that's just a, a point of, of commentary. I know that will probably come out a lot in the debate next week. Okay, thank you. Alan? Yeah, um, I think we all understand uh, you know, the situation that we're in, the emergency situation, and, and shortcuts are, are having to be taken. It's just as simple as that. Uh, but I think the public, uh, and certainly the, I've noticed the media over the last couple of weeks picking up on this and, and sort of nearly making fun of the Assembly that, uh, you know, be, that, that we're debating things that have already been in running for three or four weeks. You know, and so I, I, I can understand that. Uh, but as I say, we are at the cold face and we understand why it's happening the way it's happening. But the... Um, I, I did uh, put forward uh, a thought uh, a few months ago about inviting the two junior ministers uh, to come to the committee, and I think we established that, in fact, we weren't sure whether that was, would be permitted, but we have established think, through the chair that it would be permitted. Um, but I don't think we've still formally uh, you know, taken a, a decision to invite them. But I think it's more imperative now than ever uh, that the, you know, rather than talking to officials here and asking them to convey messages back, I don't think it would be unreasonable for us to have the two junior ministers at the end of the table here and have them explain to us, and possibly to our satisfaction, they may be able to tell us the, the rationale behind it. Uh, but I think it would be useful, and, and I, I would formally propose that we, we do that as a matter of urgency, that we arrange for the, uh, the two junior ministers to come and explain why the, the situation is as it is. Okay, I'm going to take views from other ministers, but I will say in relation to that, I think, Alan, with all due respect, is something of a deflection, to be honest. We, the, the Department, are responsible for providing us with officials who can give answers to the questions we are asking. And um, at, the, at the time when we were looking for the, the, the junior ministers in, they were doing a lot of the, 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 uh, the bringing it into the Assembly, and that was the purpose of that. But that has now reverted back to the Department. And I, I, I honestly believe that, that we are fully entitled to expect that the people who are presented to provide answers are able to give those answers. Um, and, and come back. So I'll, I'll go to other members in relation to that point. Sorry, I have Jerry first. Chair, Chair, with respect, what you're asking, you're asking officials to justify what the executive are doing. And I keep coming back to this. We seem to have lost sight of the fact that this is collective responsibility of the executive. And the responsibility lies firmly with the executive, with yeah, the First Minister and the Deputy yes. First Minister. And therefore, the junior minister, I don't think it's unreasonable the junior ministers they appear before this committee and explain why this situation is pertaining. Uh, Pam? Chair, um, I actually disagree with Owen's point there because I think what we're, what we're asking today, we're not asking for the rationale behind it. We know what the rationale is. Um, what we're asking is specific questions based on the legislation that's been put before us. And that's where today has been very lacking because they weren't difficult questions. They weren't questions that you couldn't predict would have been asked, yet there were no answers to them. I think that's the problem. And I think the, the right people were there today, but they didn't have the answers. And I think uh, the, I would agree with uh, the Chair's point around this, um, that, that they, they should have been able to give us those answers to what were not complicated questions. 
Thank you, Jerry. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, it does seem to be Groundhog Day again, Chair, um, and I agree with your points around the info. Uh, I mean, as you said, Pam, some of these questions are not left field, they're pretty predictable, what um, me and others were going to ask, and it's quite um, remarkable that we couldn't get answers to some of them. And to be frank, I don't oppose any minister coming here if they can clarify, so whether it's uh, our officials, whether it's uh, TEO or, or Health, I'm not opposed to any of them coming, coming through. Um, and to me, just on the general point around um, the regulations, it does seem absurd that we are discussing them weeks after they've been implemented. I mean, <laughs> maybe uh, different view views in the committee, but I don't think anybody would necessarily see Westminster as the bastion of democracy. They discussed the regulations uh, last night that they're implementing and uh, voted on them uh, last night. I think we need to have a, um, a quicker role for the committee to consider them uh, and the Assembly as well. So I know it's a general point that people have made, but I do feel it's a bit like a groundhog day, sure, where we'll be asking for information and answers and we're not getting them from you know a, a variation of, of officials, so that's a concern I would share as well. Okay, I, I suppose I will just say before I go to, uh, first of all, Colin and then Paula on the phone, but um, in the absence of consultation and some of the other things, I, I think there is some benefit in relation to at least having time to see how they're impacting on the ground, and that was why I was particularly frustrated today that we weren't able to get that those answers because one thing we do one thing the delay gives us is some time to see how they're how they're working on the ground so there's there's a I suppose an issue there anyway i'll go to colin on the phone thanks very much chair yeah i mean I, i'm kind of minded to, to reflect on the process and insofar as what we were being asked to do the the idea as was put to us way back at the very beginning uh, in march was that this method uh, was the, the sensible way to go forward because ministers could take decisions very, very quickly uh, and then it could be given a 20-day process to see how it was impacting on the ground and then it would be subject to the Assembly taking an affirmative um, decision to say, yes, look, we're okay with these because there always is the opportunity when it's in the Assembly that we could, as an Assembly, say, no, we're not happy with this and overturn the decisions. However, I think what we've encountered is that in, in practice, you know, it's it's not really the it's too late. We're, we we realise now that for us to be discussing something four weeks later, whenever there's maybe been three or four changes since to some of the rules that we're debating, just makes a mockery. And I think that in that spirit, rather than hauling people in to ask them their views or asking department officials what their thoughts are. I think that we should be writing to the first and deputy first minister and saying, is there another method that we could be delivering these rules and regulations that allows, as Jerry said, the assembly to be able to take a very quick uh, view, debate, discussion on that. So that if, for example, our executive is making a decision on, on a Thursday, maybe then that could be coming to the house on a Monday for debate and decision on the Monday. And then we will have asked the questions, ministers will have given our answers, people will have contacted us over the weekend to be able to go in and ask those questions, and when the decision is taken on the Monday night, then everybody knows exactly where they're going. But instead, we're left four weeks later discussing something that is totally, in times, irrelevant. And that's where I think we're getting caught up. So I would propose that we write to the First Deputy First Minister and say, is there another way that could be utilised to deliver these regulations that allows for greater openness, transparency, and democratic accountability. Okay, going to Paula. 
Um, thank you, Chair. Just to follow on on, on Colin's point there around um, the accountability, I'm conscious that we are not really hearing from apart from individually as, as um, elected representatives, we're not hearing from those people who are most directly affected. Are we aware whether the economy committee, for example, have they been engaging with hairdressers or pubs or, or, or other bodies there to see how these are impacting on them? But I just don't think that we are getting enough information, raw information about how these are impacting in the 21 days after they're initially led. Um, the second point, I just want to pick up on the, the response I received regarding the masks. I'm actually quite horrified um, by that. Like The World Health Organization, they have published evidence around the wearing of face masks and notwithstanding what Jonathan had said there around some of the sort of negative impacts that people then don't practice safe um, distancing, for example. But if we as members of this health committee have been trying to be quite collegiate around this, supportive where we can of, of our executive around their adherence to scientific um, guidance and best practice um, and international thinking around this virus, then if, if what we heard from that um, departmental official is right, then that is actually not happening. So I think that we need to, to follow up on this in some way if we want to get them back to actually tell us exactly what their understanding of face masks are, for example. Otherwise, um, it is just a vacant phrase that we are using in terms of the executive following scientific evidence and best practice, because clearly they're not in this instance. Okay, thank you. Any other views, members? Okay, um, so, Paul, are you suggesting that we ask for a specific briefing on face masks and on the on the evidence around face masks? Is that what your suggestion is there? Yes, yes please. And, and just, well, I suppose it's a wider issue, uh, even in terms of, you know, how is it actually filtering into the decision-making of the executive? You know, we've heard from Professor Ian Young in the past that they were receiving thousands and thousands of pages from SAGE and they couldn't filter it down for us. But somewhere within those thousands and thousands of pages, there must have been some of the evidence coming through on face masks. So I'm just concerned that, that you know, we're, we're hearing one thing and the reality is, is very much the other. So I would propose that we actually maybe have a briefing on face masks and other sort of the hygiene control, you know, how, how they're actually reflecting on the evidence that's coming forward from the likes of World Health Organization in their proposals. Okay, thank you. Um, are members content? Go ahead, John. No, I've just very to, briefly. Just to second that proposal, I suppose probably my questioning was around the adverse impacts of, of improper use, uh, but I would definitely think it would be valuable to hear a briefing uh, as to some of that evidence for and against, uh, which would be useful. Okay, thank you. Okay, are members content with that proposal? Are members content that we write again to the department and ask them to ensure that the information we have sought is, is provided and that the officials are able to answer um, questions in relation to the post hoc impact of, of the measures? Are members content with that? Okay. Sure um, there, there was a proposal from Colin. Yeah, I'm coming to that. The first minister, yep. uh, deputy first minister, about, and I know that the speaker. I, I, I recollect maybe in the last week reading some comments mm. from the speaker and. I know that he was put under a little bit of pressure from the floor of the Assembly about the last time we had a, a, a lot of these SRs came before the Assembly, and he, he, did, he understood members' concerns and said that he would you know, do what he could to try and speed it up. And I know he has sort of uh, given a, a, a comment there within the last few days, but um, I, I think really you know, somebody needs to be telling us 
why, why they're not coming, why they're not coming before the assembly in a timely manner, and, and I take Jerry's point there that the, the Westminster Assembly, they were able to debate their regulations and lockdown before it actually happened. Whereas we are sitting, actually three weeks, and some members have said today we're halfway through it. We're not. We're three quarters of the way through it. Three weeks through a four-week period, and we're only, as a committee, getting to actually talk about it, and the assembly only getting to talk about it four days before it's due to run out. So it's not a satisfactory situation, and. And I think that uh, it, it is, you know, the, the, the higher we walk the chain uh, to get answers, the, the, the better. And I would certainly support uh, uh, Colin's call for a letter from the committee to go to the First Minister and Deputy First Minister to tease out if there is a better way of, of, of maybe doing this. Yeah, and I, I, is, is that what your proposal is, to tease out? Because I, I, I just need to clarify, Colin, you're not suggesting, or are you, that the regs go to the Assembly directly without coming to committee, or is it more about how uh, they facilitate the protest via committee? Just to clarify, um, uh, Yeah, I suppose, I mean, what, what it is, is about writing the First and Deputy First Minister and asking them, is there another method of delivering and the regulations that allows for a greater openness and transparency because it was presented to us back in March as a particular instrument that was being used because it allowed flexibility for making the decisions. I suppose what we're saying is now six, seven, eight months down the line, is there a better way of doing that now that they've had a chance to review? Now, they might come back and say that there isn't, but you know, I think we need to at least tease out with them. Is there uh, another way that it could be done? And I think... Um, I think it might have been uh, Jerry that suggested that over in London um, they're doing it in a different way that seems to allow the debate, allow the discussion, allow the presentation of facts and allow a vote to be taken. Um, and then I think uh, Paula mentioned that you know if it was done in the floor of the Assembly, then maybe there's an opportunity for members of the Economy Committee to come in and give their view on what they've had an opportunity to, to reflect on, or there's members of the Finance Committee. But at the minute, we're being left as one committee with some people that don't have the answers, and then we're not getting enough time to be able to find information. Okay, well, I'm just going to take a short suspension just to discuss the procedural options that might that might exist around that. So I'm going to suspend the meeting. This is the Northern Ireland December programme signed. Thank you. Okay, so are members then content that we uh, we write to the first and deputy first minister, and we also write to the department in relation to improving the scrutiny role? Yeah. Thank you, members. So I will now like to. Um, yeah, I think we have the the officials on the line now, so we could go straight into our next session. Oh, we need to we need to complete our consideration of these of these regulations actually SR by SR. So I think yeah SR number seven is SR twenty twenty forward slash two one three. So I'd remind members that this SR gives effect to the executive's decision to introduce restrictions in Derry and Straban district council area, which have since been revoked. The SR also made some technical amendments to, to definitions. The regulations came into operation on the 5th of October and are subject to confirmatory resolution. The examiner of statutory rules has no comments to make on this SR. Um, have members any further issues to wish to raise in relation to that particular rule? No. If not, then can I ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020 forward slash 213, the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions 
Number two, amendment number eight, regulations 2020, and recommends that it be confirmed by the Assembly. Are we agreed? Agreed. SR 2020 forward slash 220. This SR introduces restrictions for a period of four weeks in relation to gatherings, sporting events, the hospitality sector, businesses, places of worship, marriages, funerals, and libraries, and amends an error in previous regulations. It also replaces the schedule dealing with postcode based restrictions, which could be amended by direction, and revokes the schedule providing for the Derry and Straban area restrictions. The regulations came into operation on 16 October and are subject to confirmatory resolution. The examiner of statutory rules has drawn attention to a small drafting error, which the department has agreed to correct and is otherwise content. So, have members any further issues to which you raise in connection with that statutory rule? No. If not, then can I ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020 forward slash 224. It's 224, I said 220, actually 224. Um, so the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020 forward slash 224, the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions number 2, Amendment number 9, Regulations 2020, and recommends that it be confirmed by the Assembly. Are we agreed? Agreed. Thank you. SR 2020-225. Uh, I remind members this SR amends some errors in previous regulations, permits sports and massage therapy to be provided to elite athletes, provides that dance of any type shall be deemed to be a form of exercise or sport, and provides exemptions to restrictions for education, training, blood donation, motorcycle driving instruction, ferries, and the use of touring caravans in an emergency. The regulations came into operation on 18 October and are subject to confirmatory resolution. The examiner of statutory rules has no comments to make on this SR. Do members have any further comments on that SR? No, thank you. So then can I ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020 forward slash 225, the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions number 2, Amendment number 10, Regulations NA 2020, and recommends that it be confirmed by the Assembly. Are we agreed? Agreed. SR 2020 forward slash 220. This SR extends the requirements to wear a face covering to a bus, coach, taxi, or vehicle being used to train for or take a driving test, an airplane, airport, restaurant, cafe bar, or public house, a bank, and public areas of government buildings. It also extends the requirement to wear a face covering to members of staff in retail and hospitality settings when they are in areas accessible to the public, unless they are protected by a partition. The need for the restrictions must be reviewed by the Department of Health within six months of their coming into operation. The regulations came into operation on 13 October and are subject to confirmatory resolution. The examiner of statutory rules has drawn attention to a small drafting error, which has since been corrected, and she is otherwise content. Have members any further issues they wish to raise with that rule? No. Thank you. So I would like then to ask the members formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020 forward slash 220, the Health Protection Coronavirus Wearing of Face Coverings Amendment Number Two Regulations 2020, and recommends that it be confirmed by the Assembly. Are we agreed? Thank you. Thank you, members. 
Okay, members, we're now moving on to the next three SRs, which are relating to travel restrictions. I refer members to papers at tab 11, including the clerk's memo at tab 11.1, and a reply from the minister at 11.5 in your pack. I can advise that departmental officials are here to brief the committee and answer questions. So I'd now like to welcome via video conferencing Ms Elaine Colgan, who is Chief of Staff to the Chief Medical Officer, and Ms Gillian Hines from the Health Protection Branch. So I would now like to go ahead and invite uh, Elaine to brief the committee, please. Thank you. Um, thank you, Chair. Um, I'm going to hand over to Gillian to do the initial brief, and then I'll come back and take any questions. Okay. Thank you. Okay, Gillian, go ahead, please. Good afternoon, members, and thank you for the opportunity to brief the committee on the changes to the travel regulations. I will outline briefly the changes made by each of these three sets of regulations in question. Amendment 14. This added five Greek islands back onto the list of exempted countries from which travellers are not required to self-isolate on their return to NI. These were Lesbos, Tinos, Seraphos, Santorini, and Zakynthos or Zante. No other changes were made by this amendment. Amendment 15. This added the final two Greek islands back onto the exempted country list, Mykonos and Crete. It also removed Italy, San Marino, and the Vatican City States from the list, requiring returning travellers to self-isolate. The third regulations in question are public health advice for persons travelling to Northern Ireland, number two regulations. These regulations require operators bringing international passengers to the UK to provide information on the passengers' requirements under the travel regulations previously discussed. These regulations repealed the previous set with similar requirements due to the volume of amendments. I will outline the main changes that these introduced. Previously, information had to be provided to passengers at three points, booking, check-in and during the journey. Now, in addition to this, information needs provided to passengers between 24 and 48 hours before departure. This ensures the most up-to-date information on exempted countries is made available to the passengers in time for them to decide whether they want to continue with their travel plans. Aside from that, all other changes are in order to make the information which must be provided at those four times more explicit on the face of the regulations. Previously, a high-level list of the information which needed to be provided was included rather than specific text to use. This also led to differences between the information provided by operators for flights into Northern Ireland compared to those arriving into other UK jurisdictions. Whilst travellers will still be signposted to local websites and information points where appropriate, the uniformity on information requirements is much easier for passengers to understand and for operators to provide on a consistent basis. That is a short summary of the changes made in the three sets of regulations, and we are happy to address specific queries the committee may have. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Jim. Uh, the first one, the first one for me is that the minister. We the, the letter we received from the minister indicates that he expects the Joint Biosecurity Centre to publish a revised methodology in relation to publication. Do you have any sense of the anticipated timeline for that revised methodology, Gillian or Elaine? Um, so the, 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 just uh, looked at the methodology again, and I think there's going to be another, oh, sorry, there's a lot of feedback there. Not, uh, Elaine, uh, you're also on blank on the screen there. Do you have your camera switched yeah, on? Yeah, I have my camera switched on. I'm not sure why the video is not working. Um, okay, we are hearing you. We are hearing you, so go ahead, uh, Elaine. Thank you. 
Thanks. Um, so the, the Joint Biosecurity Centre reviewed the methodology again this week with CMOs, so I understand there's going to be a further reiteration um, that will be then published online. So there is already information published um, from the previous methodology. It's just the most up-to-date one that's not available as yet, but it shouldn't be much longer. Okay. Uh, and when you say much longer, do you think weeks or, you know, what, what do you no, think? No, I, I don't think it would be weeks. Um, as I say, that they only reviewed it again this week with the CMOs. So I would have hoped within one to two weeks. Okay. Um, but I'll certainly pass on that the committee wants to see that up quickly. So that would be my understanding anyway. Okay. Thank you, Elaine. And then the, the, my next question is probably for Gillian. Um, uh, with reference to SR215, how is compliance with those um, uh, new regulations being monitored, Gillian? Um, sorry, Elaine, can you um, handle that question, please? Yeah, sorry, um, Colm, I'll just take that one if, that, if that's okay. okay. Um, so the compliance with those regulations, you'll, you'll have probably identified that there's no enforcement body as such named on the face of the regulations. So the two bodies that enforce those are the Civil Aviation Agency and the Maritime and Coastal Agency. Um, and they have existing powers in their own legislation, which basically sets them up as bodies uh, to inspect um, records of operators who are bringing passengers into the UK um, by, by their respective routes. Uh, so they will be the ones enforcing those um, by looking at the records in the first instance. Uh, aside from that, there is plans and discussions taking place with a view of potentially um, putting a bit more onus on operators to check PLFs, uh, sorry, the passenger locator forms um, as well. And, but that would probably be early 2021, and it would be, um, again, those same two bodies that would be looking at enforcing that. Okay. And have any operators been fined to date for non-compliance? Not as yet, um, not in the UK, in any of the regions of the UK. We do keep up to date and we are always asking to make sure that operators specifically landing in Northern Ireland are being uh, considered by the CAA and the MCA and they're not just looking at flights and, and, and ferries into uh, other regions as well. Okay, thank you. I'm going to check with members now. I do see Colin McGrath has a hand raised on the screen here, but I'm not sure if that's from the previous session. So I'll just check with you, Colin. Do you have a question on, in relation to these SRs, Colin? No, I'm going to move on to Jerry, and I'll, I think, I think uh, I'll come back to Colin. So I'll go on ahead to Jerry. Thanks for that uh, presentation. Uh, just in regards to 216, um, has, has there been any uh, benchmarking or balancing, I suppose? Um, I've just seen the news this morning that Greece is apparently considering further uh, uh, restrictive measures for the lockdown measures in place. So has that been considered uh, in relation to the, the islands, uh, the Greek island of Crete um, and on others that are being affected by these regulations? Um, yes, uh, Jerry, Greece is one of the ones that we are looking closely at. Um, at this point, it's, it's not at the such a level that we need to think about removing it, but it is, as you're right, one that we're watching closely. Thanks. A quick follow-up. Um, has there been a consideration, Elena? I made this in a previous committee, and, and it, I think you may have been aware at that stage. And it's not meant to be in a sort of flippant way, but given the, the sort of rise in cases here, has there been any further consideration about restricting travel generally uh, into, into the island? Um, I mean, it's a bit of a last resort, but considering our, our infection levels are quite high uh, compared to other countries, has there been any work done or consideration or research 
within the department uh, to benefits uh, of, of uh, strengthening most, if not all, international travel in the, in the island? Um, so the, the information that we have from CMOs and from the CSA is that the, these types of approaches actually make more effect whenever our local case numbers are lower. Um, because the um, the level of imported imported cases would potentially be a greater proportion of the of the total cases that we would see in Northern Ireland. Um, so whilst it is something obviously we continue to look at in terms of the the, the situation in Northern Ireland um, specifically as well as the other UK regions, um, at at this point um, we would say that it would be something that you would look more closely at whenever Northern Ireland was lower. Thank you. Jonathan? Yeah, no, just a quick question in relation to, um, we obviously know that as countries are added to or taken from the list, um, there's, there is people with existing holiday bookings uh, and they then face the real uh, situation of deciding whether or not to go to a destination, even though it, it does impact in terms of uh, isolation when they return or when they arrive. Uh, and I know airlines now are, are saying that even though uh, there may be restrictions or travel uh, restrictions put in place, that unless the flight is actually cancelled, uh, that those individuals uh, cannot get their, their, their money back, therefore leaving them in financial hardship and really debating whether or not they should go. Has there been any discussions with airlines or indeed insurers as to a, a better way of going about that? Um, we haven't had any engagement locally, to be fair. Um, Department for Transport have been engaging with operators. Um, my understanding is that it, for insurance, I think it depends largely on what the Foreign and Commonwealth Office travel advice says. Um, and then after there, thereafter, the, the European rules around refunds kick in. Um, so it's not something we've been specifically looking at um, in our context. Um, but certainly, if anyone did find themselves in that situation, it would be probably prudent for them to, to seek some advice um, online in NI Direct or and some of the citizens' uh, organisations. Thanks. Thank you. And uh, Elaine, in relation to, there, there was some news reporting in recent weeks around the issue of this uh, particular strain of COVID-19 that emerged within Spain uh, and within, I think, agricultural workers in Spain in particular. And I think it has been established now that 60% of cases in England potentially are from that strain and 40%, I think, here. So has that sparked any kind of review of the overall travel arrangements and the impact indeed of travel as, as a source of transmission? Um, I have to say I missed that um, in, the, in the news. I hadn't been aware of that. So let me take that away and I'll have a look and talk to Chief Scientific Advisor on that one and see if there's anything we need to look at in that respect. Okay. It just it struck me as something that was that was fairly significant and, and maybe provide some evidence which, which kind of uh, illustrates the, 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 real, the real need to have a very joined up system both here on the island of Ireland and between and across the islands all that, that travel is a, maybe a, a bigger factor that, than we have previously understood. But anyway, I appreciate that you're going to address that with, with the CSO. Do members have any other questions then for Gillian or Lane before we go into our consideration? No. Okay. Listen. Um, thank you both for coming today and for your presentations and and your answers to the questions. And uh, we we will go ahead now and have consider the, the item by item. Thank you, Gillian, and thank you, Elaine. Good. Thank luck. you, Chair. Okay. Bye. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Okay.
Okay, members, going then to SR item 11 is SR 2020 forward slash 215. Can I remind members that these regulations require operators of commercial transport services bringing passengers to the north from outside the common travel area to provide specific information to passengers in a particular manner. The information will include public health information and information on the requirement to complete a passenger locator form and to self-isolate for 14 days on arrival. In addition to the existing occasions on which operators must provide information, the SR introduces an additional requirement to provide the specified information 24 to 48 hours before the scheduled departure time. The regulation will cease to have effect after the end of one year. These regulations come into effect on the 31st of October and are subject to negative resolution. The examiner of statutory rules has no comments to make in regards to this SR. Have members any further issues with that SR? No, thank you. If not, then can I ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020 forward slash 215, the Health Protection Coronavirus Public Health Advice for Persons Travelling to NI number 2 Regulations 2020 and has no objection to the rules. Are we agreed? Agreed. Thank you, members. Uh, are members also content to note the departmental response regarding travel regulations at tab 11.5 of your pack? Members agreed? Yep. Thank you. Moving on to SR 2020 forward slash 216. So these regulations add the Greek islands of Lesbos, Tinos, Serifos, Santorini and Zakanthos to the list of countries and territories exempt from the 14-day self-isolation requirement. The regulations came into effect on the 31st of October and are subject to negative resolution. The examiner for statutory rules has reported that these regulations were laid in breach of the 21-day rule, but that she is content with the department's reason for that breach. Have members any further issues with this SR? No. Well, then, can I ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered SR 2020 forward slash 216, the health protection International Travel Amendment Number Four Regulations 2020, and has no objection to the rule. Are we agreed? Yes. Thank you, members. Number fourteen, Mr. Chair. Pardon? Number fourteen. I said four. Number fourteen. Sorry. Yes. No, absolutely. Detail is important. Alan. Yeah. We will observe the proprieties. Thank you. Moving on to Item Thirteen, SR 2020 forward slash two two three. This rule adds the Greek island of Crete to the list of countries and territories exempt from the 14-day self-isolation requirements and omits Italy, San Marino and Vatican City State from that list. Those regulations came into effect on the 31st of October and are again subject to negative resolution. The examiner of statutory rules has uh, confirmed that her report will advise that these regulations were laid in breach of the 21-day rule, but that she is content with the Department's reasons for that breach. So, have members any further issues they wish to raise in connection with this statutory rule? No, thank you. Um, if not, then can I ask members to agree formally that the Committee for Health has considered the Health Protection International Travel Amendment Number 15 Regulations NA 2020 and has no objection to the rule? Are we agreed? Great. Thank you, members. Are members also content to note the departmental response regarding travel restrictions at tab 11.5 of your pack? Yes, yeah, members are agreed. 
Thank you, members. Moving on then to the next two items, and I propose we consider the next two agenda items together. These are both uh, statutory instruments made in Westminster, in respect of which the Minister has indicated his wish for the North to be included. Departmental officials are available to take questions from members if necessary. So the first one then is 14, item 14. It's the Human Medicines Amendment, etc. EU Exit Regulations. I refer members to papers at tab 14 of your pack. Can I remind members that the committee deferred consideration of this item on the 15th of October and requested a further briefing paper, which is included at tab 14.2? The department advises that this SI will amend how medicines and clinical trials will be regulated in the North and in Britain at the end of the implementation period, taking account of the Ireland NA protocol. It will set out new transparency requirements for medicines and investigational medical products, medicinal products to allow highly regulated goods to move from the North to Britain unfettered. It also will ensure that the Medicines and Regulatory Healthcare Agency has oversight powers, that's the MHRA, has oversight powers. It will add a new licensing route for market authorisations of new medicines based on automatic recognition of European Commission licences. As set out in the papers, the Minister previously advised that he had sought legal opinion on a number of matters and subsequently gave his consent for the North to be included in this SA. Number 15 is the Human Medicines Coronavirus and Influenza Amendment Regulations. So this SA, uh, the Department advises, will make changes to existing legislation to support the rapid and effective rollout of a COVID-19 vaccine and an influenza vaccine. Members will recall that the committee considered this item in September. We requested a written briefing on the consultation responses and wrote to the Department to request clarification on the matter of liability for any harm caused by an adverse reaction to a vaccine under the proposed amendments. I refer members to the departmental responses and additional papers at tab 15 of the pack. So, have members any further issues they wish to raise in connection with those statutory instruments? Yep, a couple of questions. We do have some officials on the line that we can we can get some officials on the line um, here. Um, just checking. We may take a very short pause. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to take a short pause just to make sure of the officials on the line. Senate Chamber, program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate. Okay. So I'm going to go across then to, to uh, I'd like to welcome now by video link Mr. Kenneth Ward, who is Senior Principal Pharmacist, Mr. Chris Garland, Senior Principal Pharmacist, and Ms. Bernie Duffy, Head of Medicines Policy Branch. You're all very welcome to our meeting this morning, and thank you for attending. And I will now go to members' questions. So I'm going first to our Deputy Chair, Pam Cameron. Yep, thank, thank you, you Chair, and thank you, panel, for your attendance today. Um, can I just ask, has the Executive received a reply to its request that the falsified medicines directive does not come into effect from uh, in NI from the 1st of January? 
the discussions are ongoing. We're hoping to have some sort of resolution uh, shortly, but as of yet, no. Okay. And um, could I ask also what the situation is uh, with current UK licences for products being sold in Northern Ireland? Um, and is the Minister working with the industry to support continuity? The current UK licences uh, will will uh, will still be um, they, they will still be eligible in Northern Ireland uh, at the end of the transition period. In terms of working to ensure continuity of supply, we are working with the Department of Health and Social Care uh, on a multi-layered uh, national contingency uh, approach uh, with a number of strands, uh, including. Uh, ensuring additional buffer stocks on UK supply uh, and rebooting additional freight capacity and rebooting away from, from the short streets. So that, that, that work is ongoing and we're working very closely with, uh, with DHSC and national colleagues on that. Okay, thank you. Another question, but on the next item, we'll, we'll leave it. On, is it on the SAs, on the, on the, on yeah. the second SA, um, Pam? Yes, yeah, on 15. Uh, we'll just ask him. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yes, go ahead now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to ask in terms of um, the immunisation programme, how advanced plans are for large scale immunisation programme for COVID 19. I'll take that one, Pam. I think uh, it would be separate colleagues in the department would manage that. Uh, we can't get back to you on that, but we're really here to. Talk about the legislation, particularly, or we can update uh, offline on that. Is that update offline on it? Sorry, do you want to clarify that, Pam? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I couldn't quite make you out. Can I ask if you could repeat that? Um, so it would be other colleagues within the department. But we are responsibility for vaccine vaccination program planning. We can ask for an update from them to the committee. Yeah, that would be appreciated. Thank you. No problem. And Janice, can I ask in relation to uh, Human Medicines Amendment, the EU exit regulations, um, has there been any assessment done of the potential impact in terms of supply of medicines, or is 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 the assessment that uh, that these that is addressed sufficiently to ensure no uh, interruption to supply? Mm -hmm. Uh, Colin, the, the, the multi-layered approach that I previously mentioned um, it, it outlines a number of medications that are designed to ensure the continued availability of, of medicines to Northern Ireland. Um, and we're continuing to work very, very closely uh, with Department of Health and Social Care and, and the other UK countries on that. Uh, certainly our priority is to, to ensure the continued availability of, of medicines uh, to Northern Ireland. And, and, and certainly in, in the context of the, the protocol um, and, and we, we are working uh, as part of a working group with led by the Department of Health and Social Care working with industry uh, to explore what measures need need to be uh, put in place uh, to, to maintain that uh, in the longer term as well uh, but there are there are certainly there are uh, uh, there are a number of, of shorter term mitigations that, that have already been put in place. Uh, particularly around uh, the continued availability of goods that are already on the market uh, prior to, to the end of the transition period. Uh, the MHRA has uh, released uh, guidance for industry on that with a clear definition of what is meant 
buy goods on the market and these goods will be able to continue to circulate freely uh, between the uh, between GB and Northern Ireland and, and the EU uh, from from the first of January going forward. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Chair. And it neatly follows on from from that point. Um, with ninety eight percent of uh, medicine supplies coming through GB to Northern Ireland, there is indeed a lot of concern out there as to the future of medicine supply in Northern Ireland in relation to if there was a divergence in rules uh, and the many unanswered questions through the protocol. Uh, you mentioned this briefly in terms of exploring options. Could you maybe elaborate a, a wee bit more on that in terms of ensuring that there is a continuity of supply for patients, uh, particularly with some with uncommon illnesses, as to how they can be prioritised? There are, uh, and, and there are a, a number of options that are being um, worked through in, with industry um, at present. Uh, I, we, I, can't, I can't provide you with the, the full detail of those at the minute because some of those are linked to ongoing negotiations between the, the EU and, and the UK. But there are a number of issues that are, are, uh, are a number of potential uh, longer term mitigations that are being explored uh, with industry. Ultimately, the decision as to, to the particular mitigations uh, will, they will be a, a matter for commercial companies um, to, to, to uh, consider their own individual supply chains. Uh, and, and what works best for for their their um, their, their individual companies. But sorry, from our perspective, I mean, we we we're very very clear on the messaging that we're getting from industry is that, is that they're they're very very willing to work with us to uh, to maintain the continuity of, of supply of medicines to Northern Ireland uh, going forward. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So thank you, Bernie. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Canis, for your uh, briefing and your answers to the committee questions. And um, we appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. We will give them now further consideration. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. So, members, um, if any other comments on that, I'll take them now. Or otherwise, if members are content to note uh, the essays, mm -hmm. members content to note. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Uh, sorry, Paula. Yes. Go ahead, Paula. Sorry, no, I, I, I didn't ask a question because I, I thought that the briefing that they supplied was very comprehensive, so I would just like to put on record my thanks for that additional information the committee received. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Um, okay, members, thank you. Content to note. And we're moving on then to correspondence item uh, 16. So, can I refer members to your correspondence at tab 16 of the pack and to the correspondence memo at tab 16.1? There's a few items that I would like to draw members' attention to. So, first of all, item 16.2 is a response from the minister to the committee's request for an update on gender identity services. And um, I, I have to, to note that, as I did earlier in chair's business, that myself and Jerry did meet with members of that uh, of that sector last week, last Tuesday, and um, I suppose it is clear to me that there is a very huge deficit in terms of gender identity services here. Um, they have not been addressed in any, in any realistic way. They kind of appear to be something of a, a vacuum there in terms of services, but Jerry, do you have any comment? Yeah, thanks, Chair. I think it was a, a useful brief, and, and uh, I think um, Alexa is appreciative of yourself and, and, and Paula's uh, staff member for being there. 
Just quickly on, on the correspondence, I mean, there's almost 500 people waiting on services. Uh, I've submitted a number of questions on that, uh, but I think it, there's a concern that was reflected in the meeting that it's almost uh, the issue of transcurs still seen as a, um, uh, an issue of sort of a disease almost, uh, rather than an issue of care uh, and, uh, you know, um, uh, having that uh, where it's located within the healthcare system. So that, that's maybe a briefing for another day, but I think that needs to be reflected in the department's approach to handling these services and, and the concern that was expressed to us is that the members of the trans community are, are being forced to travel or forced to go private. Uh, they're you know, paying the, the NHS, their taxpayers, they deserve services on the NHS. I know you, and I know you agree with that, Chair, but I think has to be, uh, that has to be reflected in uh, the department's approach and they've been uh, neglected for, for too long, I think. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, go ahead, Paula. Um, thank you, Chair. And apologies, I wasn't able to make uh, my colleague um, Mickey, who works very much with the LGBT community, and he fed back to me how well the meeting went. But and I appreciate the minister writing with an update, but I think that we need to be pushing them to move quicker on this because it is devastating for those people who've been on the waiting list for years. When I met with um, representatives from Brackenburn. Um, up in Loch Bracken a few years ago, you know they they themselves want to be doing more for the community and and getting the waiting list down, but they just aren't given the resources and haven't had an uplift in years, despite the waiting list going up. So I, I don't want this one to slip off the agenda. I think we as a committee need to keep on it and make sure that the commitments given in the letter from the health minister are followed through as soon as possible. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Okay, members. Otherwise, content to note then the, the, that response pending pending keeping uh, that we continue to um, keep an eye on that in the in the time ahead. Thank you. Item sixteen point six then is a response of the minister to the committee's request for further information on the decision making process behind the second Nightingale facility at White Abbey Hospital. And I do appreciate that there is substantially more information contained within that. Uh, however, I didn't get an opportunity today uh, to raise it, but I have, uh, I have uh, become aware of concerns. And one of my concerns about the Nightingale, the, the step-down facility in White Abbey, was accessibility for patients. Was my, I suppose, my first thing that I thought of. I have uh, since picked up on some concerns around staffing and availability of staffing, and I get a sense that it's, it's been difficult to. Um, Re reposition staff into that setting, um, and I wonder would committee agree that we write and ask the minister to update us in relation to the staffing of the of the, the setting specifically, um, on top of the, the information he's already provided. Would members, yeah, Pam? Yeah, chair, I'd be happy enough with that. Um, and it would be also useful to know what the the membership of the project board, which recommended the decision to go with whatever, what you know, to ask um, what the membership is or was. Um, okay, members content. Yeah, members content to ask that information as well. Yeah, thank you. Okay, item um, sixteen point two eight is from the speaker, informing the committee that a public petition regarding restoration of the Down Hospital Emergency Department was laid in the assembly on the thirteenth of October. This has already been forwarded to the department, and the committee will be copied into the department's response. Can I remind members that the committee previously considered related correspondence from Mr Chris Hazard, MP, and wrote to the Department to seek assurance on a collaborative, co-produced and regionally balanced approach to urgent and emergency care. We also have a scheduled a briefing on the review of urgent and emergency care 
for the 10th of December. So we are we are conducting a brief, we are receiving a briefing on that review. So are members content to note that for for the present, pending the department's reply and for the consideration of urgent and emergency care in December? And I have an indication from Colin. Yes, Colin. Yes, uh, Chair. Um, no shock that I want to speak on this. But Chair, just to further to that, um, something that I think that uh, has come from the Southeast Trust over the last few days, which I think is just disgusting, is that they're going to centralise the acute psychiatric services at the Ulster Hospital, removing it from Lisburn, removing it from the Down, and centralising it uh, at, at the Ulster Hospital. And just to point out, it is the most unique interpretation of centralised that I've ever experienced as it's right at the very edge of the entire geographical area which means that if we have people in the morns that are having an acute psychiatric experience they then have to be taken by car up to 40 miles away to, to receive treatment I, I think that we should be asking personally the, the southeastern trust to come in and explain to the committee exactly the changes that they're making to the profile of their health service during a coronavirus time um, and using the cover of that to make these swathing changes, which is removing services from the rural community. Now, I'm fairly certain I'll not get back up from the committee on that, but I certainly want to make it uh, as a proposal because it's very worrying. There's the psychiatric centre of excellence in terms of teaching and nursing uh, on the island of Ireland was at the Downstar facility, and this is the door being closed on it, and it being moved over to the Ulster Hospital, and I just think it's disgraceful. Thank you. Um, th thank you for that, Colin. And just, just to say that we are more generally uh, working on a session with all of the trusts in terms of rebuilding services, including changes around COVID. So I think that would be an appropriate and maybe a, 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 an appropriate opportunity, Colin, for all members to raise issues across a number of trusts rather than any one specific trust. So are members therefore content that we continue to work on that and that we note the correspondence then otherwise? Yeah, thank you. Item 16.36 is an SL1 policy proposal from the Department to extend the provisions of the Children's Social Care Coronavirus Temporary Modification of Children's Social Care Amendment Regulations, NA 2020, which expire on the 7th of November. So the Department advises that in recent weeks, as we have entered the second wave of the pandemic, staff shortages and pressures on children's social care services have increased significantly, and it is anticipated that the October monitoring report would show a renewed reliance on the flexibility provided by the modifications in the regulations. I can advise members that the Department has since made the regulations which came into force today and which will be considered by the committee in the coming weeks. So, um, members will remember the committee sought the views of key stakeholders on those original regulations. Um, would members, in, in light of the significant impact that this can have on some of these young children who are already very vulnerable, would members be of the view that we should potentially seek those views again in terms of the new regulations? Would that be something? That, yeah. Members content to that we that we seek uh, so we seek the views of the stakeholders in regards to the new regulations. Members content, thank you. Item sixteen point three seven then is from the acting chief dental officer regarding updated operational dental guidance. So um, 
Would members be content to seek the uh, views of the BDA and the BAP DNA on the new guidance? We have sought their views before. Would members be content that we seek their views on the new Yes, go ahead, Pam. Yeah, that would be good. Um, I think on the face of it, it's very welcome news that uh, reduction of travel time from 60 minutes, because we know the dentists were operating, I think it was in around 25% capacity, which is um, very concerning going forward. So I think um, it's bound to be good news, but it'd be good to actually um, touch base with them and see what, um, the, what the reaction is to that news. Yeah, I, I think that, that will be useful as well. And, and I also would welcome that... that uh, attention to the follow period and I think it is one of those issues that the committee has successfully brought some attention to and uh, hopefully that will provide some relief for dentistry in, in relation to improvements in that area. So thank you, members are content with that. Item 16.42 then is a response from the Public Health Agency to the issues raised at the briefing on the 15th of October. Um, so have members any comments in relation to that briefing? Um, I know it's been raised to some degree with the minister as well, so yeah, that that's okay, and it's, it's also dealt with via the motion. So um, members are content then just to to note that. Okay, thank you. Item sixteen point four four is an analysis from the NA Cancer Registry on the impact of COVID nineteen on cancer. Any comments, members, in relation to that issue? Um, Chair, can I come in, please? Yeah, go ahead, Paula. Um, yeah, I read, I read the report and I appreciated the um, Anna Gavin sending it through. Um, I, I, what I read, I was particularly concerned about lung cancer in terms of the pathology, the samples being sent through for um, testing. So I, I suppose it's something that we, we do need to be looking at because we're finding problems from the surgeries being delayed. Um, treatments being delayed, diagnosis, and, and right through the whole journey. Obviously, the APG is trying to do its best to sort of keep on top of this, but I think that it's becoming increasingly critical in terms of the numbers of people being um, late, um, late to diagnosis. So maybe it's something we need to look at as a committee. Yeah, and I, I would I would agree, Paula. I have to say, and maybe suggest that we uh, look at this in relation to our next strategic planning session. That we look at cancer services. Uh, uh, at how we might consider them, that we, we make that part of our next strategic planning session. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Okay, members are content with that. Thank you. Item 16.45 then is from the chair of the new all-party group on lung health, and that is our own, actually, deputy chair, Pam Cameron, requesting that the committee undertake research to identify how many health and wellbeing programmes and services exist across the north and the risk and potential cost to the Department of Health if these services had to stop or be reduced. And I suppose that is, that is you know, there's no doubt that's a, a hugely important issue. I'm just sort of conscious of how many of the APGs are related to health and, and in terms of our own capacity and things like that. But I wonder, would members be content that I ask the clerk to have a look at what might be involved in that and come back to see if, if it's something? Go ahead. Yeah, Chair, I would really I understand. We all understand the pressures that this committee is under. Um, and I think today is a <laughs> classic example of that. We're meeting at half eight and, and don't take any breaks and we're no near to finishing. But um, and understand the, the, the staff pressure as well on committee, but I would appreciate if the um, clerk could take it away and look yeah. at the issue in particular and maybe come back to us with you know, any recommendations as to whether um, some research work could be done or not. Okay, thank you. Members content to note that? Yep. Okay. Um, 
forward work programme, then I refer members to item 17. Yep, go ahead, Alan. If I could refer to one of the letters in yep. the correspondence pack, it would be 16.21. Um, it's the letter from the Department of Health uh, expressing an opinion on the, uh, the tone of the questioning from uh, uh, Pat Sheehan, a member of the committee, on the 15th of October. And we have it down just to note it, and you know, I'm not particularly happy with the fact that it's just, it's just been noted. Um, maybe there's not an awful lot more we do from it, but uh, it certainly um, it would be erroneous uh, for, for anybody to assume that uh, the rest of the committee just were shrugging their shoulders on, on this. Um, it uh, also it, it does refer to. Um, Personal information being provided during the uh, during the questioning, uh, but I think it, it, it's it's also uh, worth putting on the record that at a, a later point of the meeting, uh, possibly not recorded in Hansard uh, because it wasn't during the evidence, but another member of the committee did actually uh, quote a figure of half a million pounds of salary uh, sitting in the room uh, that was given evidence to us. Uh, and I think that uh, that really was uh, a breach as well uh, of, of personal uh, information. Um, and I'm just wondering uh, if, you know, there's, there's obviously we have a scrutiny rule, and, and I think the letter acknowledges that we can ask probing questions. Uh, but I, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, is, is there a demarcation line between questioning and um, um, you know, quite robust criticism uh, of of a person, uh, a person's um, uh, performance uh, in the workplace, and uh, I would have thought that the, uh, you know, uh, within certainly within the civil service, if I if I had any complaint about any member of the of the civil service here operating within this committee, uh, I would imagine that there's a chain of command that I would have to go through. Uh, that it wouldn't be my place uh, to uh, address criticism to any member uh, of the, the civil service serving this committee about their performance. That you know, I would have to go through. It would be a protocol, a, a line of command, and I would imagine that, uh, similarly with the, uh, the public health agency, if if any of our members did feel moved uh, to describe uh, a system that, that's designed to try and save lives. As being uh, as useful as a, a chocolate fire guard, uh, I would have thought that the proper uh, avenue for the member to uh, make those remarks uh, would have been uh, again through that chain of command, and I would have thought that th those sort of remarks uh, should have been addressed maybe uh, directly to the uh, to the minister, uh, as he would have ministerial responsibility for all that staff that were sitting that day, uh, given the evidence, but. Uh, you know, just uh, once again, uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I would totally want to disassociate myself from the not only the remarks they, they have just referred here to the remarks, but it was also the tone um, of the questioning as well. I, I just I, I found it embarrassing, and uh, it, uh, I don't think it does anything for the reputation of this committee that if that's the, the line of, of, of and tone of questioning uh, that that we would see as being acceptable and normal. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Pam. Yeah, thank you, Chair. And um, I too didn't want it simply to be noted that particular 
point at 16.21 because I think well, I don't know maybe the, maybe someone else could advise whether I certainly haven't seen um, a letter of this type actually come from the department before into committee so um, I think it does demonstrate what certainly I felt on the day was a, a, a very definite level of embarrassment as being a member of this committee that that some committee members would um, use tones that I didn't think were acceptable and um, uh, and refer to personal issues around um, pay and whatnot. I didn't think that was in any way appropriate either. Um, I, I would like to get your reassurance as chair um, that should this um, happen again, um, that you would actually step in and st and stop that happening because I, I just think it's it's inappropriate and I, I don't think this um, committee should be um, sullied by the, the you know inappropriate um, behaviour of a few. Um, so I I just would I would just like to get that reassurance that that, that would not be allowed um, to happen in future or that it would be stopped as quickly as possible um, in, in terms of. Uh, appropriate behaviour of this committee. Thank you. I do see a hand raised from Colin. I'm not sure if you're looking in on this section, Colin, or if, you're, if that hand's up from previously. Oh, it's up from previously, but I'll, I'll you know, just in commenting on the issues, Chair, number one, my comments weren't made directly to the people's face. It was made afterwards whenever we were discussing their, their contribution. Um, their pay is a matter of public knowledge. The posts are publicly advertised. Uh, and as public grades, the, the amount of finance that they receive for their post is correctly uh, publicly known because they're carrying out a job on behalf of the public. Um, and I still stand over the uh, core tenant that was being made that day, that if we have officials in charge of a department in the middle of a pandemic, and they can't tell us how many staff they actually have employed as part of that pandemic response, there is accountability that's required there. And we're all charged with accountability and we're all charged with seeking that information. And I think if we didn't call out that day, what was heard, we would have been doing the people of Northern Ireland a great disservice. Um, and if that is to spur a few blushes of a few individuals that aren't uh, more robust in, in their approach, then maybe people just need to, to accept that they have a different approach. But I don't think that there was anything wrong that day. Okay, I do need I do need to get to our leaders. We, we do need out of here for 1.30. Um, members have put their views on the record. I'm conscious that, that Pat has left the, the meeting prior to this discussion starting. I want to say as chair, I absolutely uh, would like that all members would be constructive, positive, uh, courteous, and all of that. But I do expect this committee, and, and I expect the committee, to hold senior officials and ministers, or whatever, to account robustly. And I don't think that, uh, in, in which, which there was some indication that this was a reflection on the staff on the front line, it's not, absolutely. So I absolutely will endeavour, and I will continue to endeavour, to ensure that we engage on that basis. It, I'm not accountable for what members say. I can't predict what members are about to say, but I do think we should certainly engage constructively and courteously, but robustly and in a challenging fashion. So I'm going to, members, members' views have been noted there, and we have noted the latter as well. So I'm going to move on to our Leah. 
Yeah, um, so just on another point, I wanted to bring members' attention to 16.15 in the correspondence. Um, I think it's a really, really significant um, announcement and piece of work that the committee needs to stay close to. Um, it was the, the release of the substance misuse strategy um, that the Minister announced um, a couple of days ago. So it, it's just a note, I suppose, from, from my first reading of it. There is, um, I think, a lack of um, reference and emphasis, particularly around gambling and specifically around dual diagnosis. Um, included within the consultation and I'm just conscious and I have raised this directly with the Minister um, a, a number of times um, but neither of these specific services are currently commissioned by the Health and Social Care Board and it's it's unacceptable um, considering all the overlaps and triggers with suicides, with gambling and, and with, um, with drug misuse and poor mental health. So um, I would like to suggest that the, um, because it's such an important and critical consultation and it's really, really important that as many people get involved and have their, their voices heard um, on this piece of work. So if the committee would be content to write to the Department of Health, asking them to explain a wee bit more on how they intend to carry out this consultation given the COVID-19 restrictions. I know that the Minister has referred to that it's, there's going to be an online process, which is, is fair enough. Um, but uh, maybe just to explain a wee bit further about how they can, you know, reach out to get as much participation in, in this important piece of work, and maybe also if he did have any communications with the mental health champion um, previous to the consul the, the publication of the the consultation, because I know this is an issue that that's on firmly on her radar as well. Thank you. Okay. Members content with that approach? Sure. Jonathan, very quickly. Now we're against it. Yes, just on on that point, actually. Was it 6.3 that Erleth was? Sorry, 16.15, the substance misuse. Okay, so, sorry, so I, it's on a different issue but related. Uh, on 16.3, which was the APG on, ga on gambling and the impact, they're very much related in relation to, to what Erleth is saying. Um, with my former hat on, whenever I was a member of the Communities Committee, um, what became apparent as obviously this important piece of legislation is going to be coming through the House uh, this term. Um, what was evidently missing from the consultation that the Department of Communities had carried out was the health implications uh, and the societal harm and impact on our health service that, that uh, gambling misuse can, can have. So I just wanted to, to raise it whenever I, I got a chance, and it was related that it's something this committee is going to have to really uh, take some considerable notice of. and. Um, bring officials before the committee because the evidence has to be forthcoming and to enable members of the Communities Committee and indeed the wider Assembly to weigh up these issues on balance, uh, recognising uh, the serious health implications that uh, misuse gambling in terms of the problematic nature has caused our society. So I just wanted to, to put that on record. Thank you. Okay, very quickly on another point, it's 16.41, which is the individual who um, rode in around shielding. Um, and um, happy enough for that, the CMO's statement on the 23rd of October to be provided. But I just think it's maybe another point as well, maybe to make to the department around communication that there are a lot of people who are very concerned who were previously shielding uh, before and they don't understand why they're not being asked to shield now. And I just think we, we should be asking um, the uh, department or the CMO in particular to. Um, give us more detail around that and whether um, what has happened from the, the review uh, of the 
see it most from across the the, the regions, just in terms of um, keeping uh, those who are previously shielding informed properly. Okay. Yeah. Members content with that? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, uh, members, forward work programme, I refer you to tab 17.1, and we have discussed some of the forward work, but are members content to note the forward work programme? Sure. Quick point. Uh, I know we discussed this on our strategic plan today, but uh, in regards to the um, mother and baby institutions, um, I know we discussed this, like I said, but I think in light of obviously everything happened with the South um, and the way it's been approached, I think it's uh, extra important that we do have uh, victims' voices heard uh, in response to the um, the working group. So I know, like I said, you're, you're working on that, Chair, and we've discussed it, but I think it's an extra, it's extra uh, uh, of extra importance considering what's been happening south of the borders, so just to kind of re-emphasise uh, that we do that as a committee. Yeah, and, and I would like actually maybe to confirm a date today, and I'll come back to members with a date for that meeting, because I think that is a crucial meeting, so to hear those voices and that that is inputted. So are members otherwise then content to note the forward work programme? Yeah, members content. Any other business? Do members have any other business? No, thank you. Date, time and place of next meeting, members. The next meeting will be on Thursday, the 12th of November, at 9.30 in the Senate Chamber. Can I ask members uh, to make themselves available next Thursday afternoon also, so that we can carry on discussing the evidence gathered for our inquiry? And I know that's difficult for some members, but um, if I could ask members to ensure, if you can, to please attend that next Thursday afternoon. So uh, we will start that session in the morning, but we're unlikely to finish it, uh, given what we have in front of us. So thank you, members, and I'll see you at the next meeting. Thank you. I'm signed. This is the Northern